0: together
1: <clears throat> yeah no problem i wish i had uh, the forethought to set some of this up i probably would have i've uh you know got all kinds of uh audio you know video recording equipment it's like when i sit down and do basic zoom meetings and, and conversations uh-huh, i've gotten yeah. just accustomed to using the uh, the built-in internal mic on the laptop and
0: yeah golly you know for podcasts you really if you got the equipment you might as well use it right yeah it doesn't surprise me you have the equipment you're uh you're a media guy aren't you
1: yeah, that's one of the, the hats I wear. Right. <laughs> Depends on the day. <laughs> and
0: it's not only a Glengarry; he also has a media hat and other stuff. Yeah. So, and you mentioned that you you recently built a like a like an office uh, workshop shed in your backyard. Is that where you're talking to me from?
1: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, my own little private auxiliary building. It's, my wife refers to it as my outhouse. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's kind of a two story outhouse. Pretty uh, that's pretty large awesome. space.
0: I've got a, a similar, though probably smaller, setup. We had a when we bought the house. There was a pretty nice brick shed behind it, and uh, but it was just just that, just a shed. So a couple of years ago, I finished out a little more than half of it. So I also have a tiny little uh, outhouse that I go to when I'm when I have work to do or when I'm just feeling crabby and the family doesn't want to see me anymore.
1: <laughs> sure. Uh, well. Then I'd live out here probably all the time, they'd tell you. <laughs> but it's nice to have an escape like that, for yeah. sure.
0: Yep, yes, sir. Well, I want to know, uh, know everything, not only about Bigfoot and Skinwalkers, but also about you and bagpipes and stuff. And so, <laughs> let's start with biography and see where we go. Um, where were you born? How'd you, shoot, how'd your parents meet, you know? Back, back me way up, and how did you come into this world, sir? <laughs>
1: How did I come into this world? Well, okay. Hang on a sec.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I should be more careful with my questions here.
1: (laughs) Right? This is a a family-friendly... It is a
0: family-friendly podcast. Podcast. Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, yeah, happy to give you the, the background. It's uh, it's funny with the, you know, bagpipes, Bigfoot, all that fun stuff. Yeah. I, I, I guess I've developed a bit of a reputation. Maybe <laughs> maybe that's a bad thing. I don't know.
0: No, not any press. No press is bad press. So uh, how did the, how did this madness get started?
1: <laughs> well, probably uh, got started uh, because my mother, uh, her side of the family comes from Payson, Utah. Hey, me too. Yeah. Down that neck of the woods. Mm-hmm. So as a, and I mean just as a toddler, mm-hmm. I uh, I was attracted to the sound of the bagpipes. Yeah, the, You have the Payson Scottish Festival, obviously, down there, but there were the Onion Days Parade and all those little fun little local festivals. My, my family
0: members always make fun of us that we have Onion Days. You know, they all have, like, <laughs> Strawberry Days or, like, Watermelon Days, you know, for the, their summer festival, you know. Payson has Onion Days.
1: <laughs> it has Onion Days. But, hey, Payson's got some of the most incredible... Um, you know, community activities like the Payson Salmon Supper.
0: The Salmon Supper, absolutely. Yeah. There
1: are very few festivals that I would miss in the state of Utah. Uh Well, sorry, take that back. There, there are a number of festivals I could miss in the state of Utah, but there right. are very few that I refuse to miss. Yeah. And one of those is the Salmon Supper. Yeah. Uh, just nothing like having, uh, what essentially is a, a, a town picnic. I mm-hmm. mean, everybody comes out, participates. You have the The football team is helping bus tables. You got the cheerleaders out there. You got, you know, the fire departments over there cooking. They close down that street and they bring in all the, the uh, clippings from uh, the orchards, all the fruit wood, which they use to light these massive bonfires. And then yep. they put these. Uh, the, they fly in. Uh, I think what was it last year? They they flew in five thousand pounds of salmon out of yeah. Alaska, <laughs> that they put out on these what essentially are are stretchers that the fire department rotates, uh, on, uh, over those coals. And then they carry those things, uh, up to, uh, you know, the serving station and, you know, it's just, it's incredible. And you sit down and everybody gets corn on the cob and, you know, the rolls and the, what essentially is half a filet of salmon on their plate. And you sit down at these massive uh, tables that are just packed into the park and it's, it's a beautiful park, huge
0: old trees. So lots of shade and stuff. Yeah.
1: Yeah, It's, uh, it, it, it brings a sense of community and small town Americana that you just, it's disappearing. Yeah, it feels like a whole modern age. It? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I, I, I cherish opportunities to go back there because that is, of course, my roots. That's where my family came from. I used to, uh, during Easter, uh, run around and do the Easter egg hunt in that, that yeah. same park. Yeah. And so I got a lot of fond memories going back there. But one of the earliest ones, of course, was hearing those pipes. Yeah. And just as a toddler, I. I was drawn to that sound it just stirred something in my soul yeah. and I knew I had to to get closer to that I had to I had to touch it I had to be a part of that and so those are my earliest earliest recollections and memories and as I started to grow up um, my parents uh, my father uh, is from a small town in southern Utah Milford uh, mm-hmm. don't don't know if you're familiar with that place but it's mm-hmm it's uh south of delta uh or west of beaver so if you're, yeah hit, so either hit, you hit, go
0: to the middle of nowhere and then head south or you go to the middle of nowhere and then head west head west yeah. yeah so so <laughs> uh, out
1: there at uh, the crossroads of of, of nowhere and, and beyond nowhere
0: yeah
1: <laughs> is a little railroad town called milford yeah and that's where my dad's from my mother's from payson
0: uh they ended up, uh, so it, um, it, for your parents, your, your mom's the city girl. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. By comparison, In comparison, I, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Although
1: he couldn't find a, a woman more country at heart. I mean, yeah. she'd come home from school, uh, you know, they're petite neat and all that fun stuff. She'd, she'd come home, she'd saddle up her horse and, uh, she'd go riding up the Canyon. My, uh, grandfather had a little bit of a, a farm and orchard there and yeah. uh, they had horses raised, you know, rabbits and other things. And she'd come home and she had a little, uh, Springer Spaniel. She'd put the, uh, saddle on the horse and she'd go right up uh pacing canyon there yeah and come back at dark do some homework and yeah she's she's she was the the, the city girl in the equation <laughs> yeah here, but uh, certainly <laughs> it's uh, all it relative huh? yeah yeah well her her dad actually uh was a uh, uh he was the wyoming uh, rodeo champ uh, a couple years running he was oh, a, really? a true cowboy he ended up being a rodeo clown later in life and, oh, yeah Yeah, so I've got uh, those those cowboy rodeo roots in my uh, yeah. I'm thinking uh, uh,
0: like a rodeo clown in the bloodline makes sense to me with you know (laughs) (laughs) so some of the the cool and crazy interests you know. Yeah, yeah, I guess that is appropriate.
1: But uh, anyway, uh, they met, uh, married, had me. Uh, I was born in Provo and uh, raised uh, uh, for a few years there in Payson, where my younger brother was, was born.
0: Well, what part it, of Payson were you growing up in? Like, you know, I mean, it's all Payson, right? But I grew it, up over by the cemetery, so I like to, you know, build a map in my head.
1: Sure. I would have been uh, a little further uh, east and then south of, mm. of there. So... Um, they ended up, uh, they had the old house, and then they uh, moved into a house where my aunt and uncle still currently live, and it's just on the, that street east of Petit Neat High, the same one that you can drive up to the canyon. Yeah, yeah. And they have a home uh, probably, I don't know, two or three blocks uh, uh, south of Petit Neat High
0: there. Gotcha.
1: And so, yeah, it was that uh, that kind of area that I I ran around in back in the day, and now everything developed and, and continuing to develop there. But, yeah, it's
0: surprising go down there now isn't it that whole commercial section that used to only be orchards and and uh and grass the the turf farm out there yep it's all it's all commercial stuff now it's funny funny how that stuff happens
1: all changed yeah Yeah. so um anyway uh ended up moving up uh, to salt lake uh graduated from byu and uh, then ended up uh deciding (laughs) yeah, well.
0: <laughs> oh, what, what did you study? Because you do a lot of interesting things, so I wonder, you know. Oh,
1: me? Yeah. Uh, well, I, yeah, I was talking about my dad there for half a second, giving you, giving you the, the, the foundations of where a lot of this stuff comes from yeah, for yeah. me. So my dad uh, uh, got his undergraduate at, uh, at BYU. Oh, I see, um, yeah. He, he served, actually, both my parents uh, are the LDS faith, and they served missions. My father to Hong Kong back in the 70s, mm. and uh, my mother to uh, Tokyo, Japan. Oh, really? So, yeah. So they had these uh, exotic foreign oriental missions. Yeah. So I was raised on stories of, uh, of the adventures in,
0: in the uh, uh, Orient. And... Yeah, and man, and a cowboy and a cowgirl in the Orient as well, you know? like That's a, right? a strong, like, west to east culture shift there, huh? In, indeed. Yeah. So they come back, and that's kind of how they met. They were teaching at uh, uh, what was the mission home in uh, Salt Lake. And, and that was uh, um, working for like, the church, like training for missionaries about to go out, right?
1: Correct. Yep. And so they uh, they kind of met uh, through uh, that course of employment, and uh, the rest is history. <laughs> Fell in love, and and along I came. Yeah. My dad, uh, because of his uh, language skills and connections uh, over in Hong Kong and China, in 1978, uh, the year I was born, uh, Deng Xiaoping. Uh, opened China up uh, Mm -hmm. so that before then uh, China was very closed. It was that communist country that was not letting anybody in and Mm -hmm. not letting uh, uh, commercial development, Mm -hmm. uh, international uh, investments, anything like that take place. Well, that changed, and there was this uh, revolution in in, uh, uh, the way they they traded with the world and, and allowed the world to come in, and tourism opened up really for the first time. And my dad, uh, because of those connections, ended up going into the travel business and mm. was working for Morris Murdoch, and he actually uh, was uh, principal in leading some of the first tours into mainland China, mm. um, kind of at the very beginning. And uh, some years later, the government here uh, deregulated uh, the travel industry. and. My dad went from making substantial money doing some of these tours to uh, making what was pennies on the dollar, Then yeah. he realized he was not going to be able to, to really kind of support uh, the family and have the future he had hoped uh, doing that, and from his young age uh, had long wanted to be a filmmaker. But he thought making movies and and doing film was something you had to be born into, like royalty. Mm. And so it was a dream that was unattainable, unreachable. Yeah, he wasn't born in Hollywood,
0: so it's not even an option, right?
1: Nope, nope. Milford, Utah, a little stop on the the Union Pacific Rail line between Salt Lake and Vegas. So he, yeah, being a a filmmaker was just a a, a dream. Well, when that happened, uh, he and my uh, mother, they were living here in, in Salt Lake, and he decided, uh, he was going to go back to school. And so he went, uh, and applied and I was accepted into, uh, the film uh, studies department at the university of Utah. Uh, he ended up getting a master's degree in, in film and, uh, during, and really kind of what turned him into that path was a, a company reached out to him, uh, while he was still working in the travel industry, taking tours into China. And, uh, uh, you know, it was no, nobody big, just, you know, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Ah, they were, I, think they had, heard, I think I've heard of these guys. Let me, you go- heard those Let guys? me Google
0: these guys real quick.
1: Yeah, so oh, yeah. Uh, their, their production team, uh, they had uh, completed uh, uh, drafting a script uh, for the second Indiana Jones film. Oh, yeah. So after Raiders of the Lost Ark and all this popularity and, and the blockbuster that it was, uh, they knew they were going to uh, do a sequel. And they wrote a, a script uh, that ended up taking Indiana Jones into China. Mm-hmm. And so they worked uh, with my father in, in trying to get uh, all the permissions and everything that was needed to go in. And uh, things were going very, very well. Uh, right. But of course, the Communist Party wanted to be painted in a good light. And as they reviewed uh, the script and the plans for the film, they decided, yeah, this is this is not what we want. Mm-hmm. And uh, it kind of turned turned that opportunity to have that film in their country down. And so if you remember uh, the second Indiana Jones film, it's uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom.
0: Yeah.
1: That very opening sequence, there's, uh, it takes place, I, I think it's the Obi-Wan Cafe. It's in, in this Chinese uh, kind of cabaret uh, yeah. uh, room where the Chinese, uh, you know, gangsters or mafia are sitting at the table and, you know, they're going to poison Dr. Jones and the gals up there singing and dancing in a red... Uh, Sequin dress and then short round the little oriental kid ends up helping save the day and and, uh, they hightail it out of there and they end up on the plane. That plane ends up uh, of course crashing in uh, uh, India and then they get wrapped up in in this whole uh, story about the Temple of Doom and the Tuggy cult in uh, India. Well that was how the story had to shift because uh, the Chinese government uh, kind of shut down what they had intended. Yeah, but that opening sequence is that last remnant of the original right. uh, intention, the original storyline.
0: That's interesting to imagine how that movie would have been if it if they hadn't you know like had to both literally and in in movie veer to India. You know, I mean, right. it's st- still a great movie, but you know, interesting to imagine what 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 else would have happened instead. It, Indeed. It, so uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> that that kind of opened uh, and, and gave my dad some connections
1: to uh, you know film, and he realized maybe I could pursue that dream after all. Maybe yeah. it isn't so closed off and, and impossible. And so because of that, uh, he ended up say, deciding after deregulation of the industry, he was going to go back to school. He was going to get uh, a degree in film and pursue that, uh, that passion. I see. And, and so he did. Uh, in fact, uh, he, uh, his master's thesis film... Uh, went on to win uh, a good number of awards around the world, in, uh, including the Academy Award uh, for documentary that year. And so he, uh, he really, you know, <laughs> I could go on, and I know we're, we want to get on to other topics. but uh, Well, but this, uh, is, my,
0: this definitely feels relevant to, to what the things that you do today. It,
1: it, it is, uh, you know, because that was his passion. And I watched uh, my father, uh, you know, growing up, Transform into this filmmaker and a storyteller. Uh, My my dad is a a wonderful storyteller. He taught screenwriting at the University of Utah for a good number of years. A number of his students' films, or uh, went on to become uh, you know blockbusters, and and uh, he's a, a very talented individual. And so that kind of set the pattern for probably my storytelling, yeah, kind yeah. of where I get that from. Yeah, yet another,
0: um, uh, yet another peg that makes a lot of sense, how this would echo into you and your experiences. And the things yeah, that you do.
1: Yeah, it uh, certainly uh, molded me into who I am now. So one of the hats I do wear, uh, as we started mentioning, was uh, film and video production. I learned at that young age that if you wanted to communicate with the masses, if you wanted to touch people emotionally, uh, one of the most powerful mediums to do that with is, is film, yeah. because you're painting with light and motion, and you incorporate music and sound, and you just start to communicate to people on a visual, and emotional, and intellectual, uh, you know, an, an audio-based level yeah. uh, that really kind of no other medium uh, combines. Yeah, in it kind that of way. brings
0: everything together, huh?
1: Yeah, so I knew if I wanted to touch people and, and communicate with, with large audiences, you know, film was going to be the way to do
0: that. Mm.
1: And uh, so I, I kind of have followed a little bit in, that, uh, in those footsteps. And I actually work uh, with my father uh, but kind of part-time. I, I divide time, and I, I could probably explain why. But I do, uh, I do film and video production with him. Uh, we have a, a film company, a Paradigm Motion Picture Company, Right now, we actually have a film that's out in the uh, uh, festival circuit. I uh, we spent the last oh what is it now five six years uh, doing. It's called America boxed in, and it deals with uh, uh, some real timely issues: uh, the whole supply chain, uh, globalization through containerization, uh, the the invention of the shipping container, the intermodal. Mm. Um, the shipping container, and how that changed the world and turned us into kind of next door neighbors. Mm. Um, you know, prior to that advent, uh, well, again, now I'm going off <laughs> down another vent, uh, oh sure you know, but road here. Is
0: is the film that is this is this film America boxed in? Is it uh, fairly dramatized or is it uh, really a documentary? No, it's,
1: it's a documentary. Yeah, uh, you yeah. know, and it's got a lot of the talking heads and things like that. But it it is a very uh, important uh, topic in film right now. Uh, Because it deals with uh, the rise, the meteoric rise of China and its state-sponsored, you know, capitalism there uh, in their communist framework. And it's dealing with a lot of the issues uh, that we're faced with right now. Uh, The whole uh, a lot of things that are going on in the South China Sea, the whole supply chain issues. Um, And now as we see some tensions rise uh, in Russia, against the Ukraine and and their support, uh, you know, with China is right now we're in the midst of uh, the uh, uh, 2022 Winter Olympics. You have um, a diplomatic boycott of the Games by a number of countries, including our own, um, because of human rights violations Mm. that that China's Committing uh, against uh, the Uyghurs over there, and so there's a whole uh, <laughs> discussion we could have along those lines. But this film uh, deals with uh, a lot of those topics, and so it's uh, doing very well in the the film festival circuit. Uh, yesterday, we actually collected our, our 50th win. Um, we've got a we're considered in the top 15 uh, films in the film circuit right now, which. Mm-hmm. Of all the the films that get entered into festivals, and I mean there are thousands that go into them.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, we've risen to the top in yeah. uh, in a lot of these festivals, and uh, you know, claimed fifty awards, uh, primarily best uh, feature documentary film, and so that's and that's been taking place just in the last few months. And so that's kind of exciting for us right now, and it's uh, uh, it, it's neat to craft a a, a film uh, that is both you know timely, important uh, to the geopolitical uh, landscape and and that social conversation and uh, to be able to, you know, connect and communicate uh, with people and and raise awareness. It's, yeah, um, that was kind
0: of, kind of of neat. So that's, I'll make sure there's, there are, I'm sure there'll be several things to link to by the end of the conversation. I'll make sure there are links in (laughs) the, in the show notes to projects that you've worked on or are working on and stuff too. Now I know that you've done documentary style stuff before because I have seen a little bit of your uh, like pipes of war project. So do you Mm. feel like that's where you feel most comfortable and strongest, or have you also done dramatic work?
1: Uh, We've assisted in in dramatic work. We get, uh, you know, we do some work for hire here and there. And so, uh, you know, as various productions uh, come to Utah, we've had um, opportunity to, uh, you know, assist. And I've shot, you know, B-roll for... Uh, you know, even like, you know, Dateline or Nightline uh, mm-hmm. for NBC and, and various things like that. And so, yeah, uh, there's opportunity to work in a lot of those different things. But our, uh, as far as our company is concerned, uh, kind of our strength is uh, producing uh, documentary films. Yeah, uh, That's, you know, the one my dad got his Academy Award for was uh, a film called Gimbakushi, uh, Killed by the Atomic Bomb. Gimbakushi mm-hmm. is, you know, Japanese, and it deals with the uh, um, second atomic bomb that was dropped uh, in Nagasaki. Um, and my grandfather uh, he was from Milford Utah uh, he it kind of follows his journey of course it tells the full uh, you know a little bit broader picture of the history of World War II, kind of what led up to that conflict and all mm-hmm. but it follows that personal journey of a, a farm boy uh, in southern Utah swept up in war after uh, Pearl Harbor uh, of course they knew that they were going to be drafted and he was going to go to war and he was inducted into the Navy and he was on a uh, one of the Uh, first three warships, it was a a boxcar carrier, aircraft carrier, Mm. that went into Nagasaki Harbor uh, after the bomb was dropped. I mean, they went in while the fires were still burning. Mm. And so uh, it it kind of follows his journey, his experience, because prior to my dad making that film, my grandfather never really talked about the sights, the the sounds, the smells, the things he saw. Oh, I can hardly, it's making the
0: hair stand up on my neck just to even imagine the hellscape that he would have been... Welcome[d] by to to come into the harbor that that quickly after the bomb,
1: okay. right? Um, so it uh, it explores that and uh, uh, the thought and uh, well, uh, again, you know, we can go down to that tangent for a while and talk about all
0: that. Well, but, what is this show uh, about, if not tangents? <laughs> well, we'll tangents kind of bring things that, back they, around. They all weave together to create what is Ian Spencer Williams. So yeah, I,
1: I suppose so. Here, here you're getting to the, to, to know me on the, uh, kind of a broad uh, spectrum. But well, and, the and that's the idea, that right? Because brought...
0: like people who have met you, it, who are going to be listening to this, have probably only ever met you wearing a kilt and holding your pipes on competition day. And so, they, yeah, I want—I want to know some of this stuff about you know what what else you know what outside of the circle happens sure. with with you. You know,
1: well, and that's what's great about your program is that you, you get to to know uh, your neighbor a little bit better on uh, when you go to these games and, yeah. and certainly the piping community here and it's it's interesting. Uh, you know, I've been in the
0: piping community in in utah for uh probably 32 years i want to say now yeah how did that start you know the connection to payson and and all you know where um i mean were you rebelling against your father and saying i'm never gonna make films i'm gonna play bagpipes (laughs) instead you know
1: (laughs) no no nothing nothing like that uh and going on that film tangent will you know i'll bring that back around and make it relevant here in a minute but uh the idea um of pipes, uh, like I said, pilled to me from that very, very young age.
0: Yeah, you liked I them. I had but... to
1: get close to them, loved them, wanted to be a part of it. Yeah. And so my family settled up here in, in uh, the Salt Lake area uh, where my dad attended and graduated uh, from the University of Utah. But of course, we'd go down and visit family in Payson. So I would constantly be down there during uh, you know, the Highland Games. And I'd, yeah. as just a child, I'd, I'd watch the pipe bands. Well, I knew I wanted to be a piper. And uh, the thing was... I didn't know, it was kind of like my dad wanting to be a filmmaker, mm. You had to be born into it. Yeah, out of reach. <laughs> you know? yeah,
0: totally.
1: it, was, it was a dream, but you know, where am I ever going to find a piper or somebody to teach me anything like that? Yeah. And when I was probably 10, 10 going on 11 years old, I happened upon a, a gentleman practicing pipes in a park near my house. And up in Salt Lake I, now, right? Up in Salt Lake, yeah. yeah. So he was just piping in the, in this park, and I was with some friends. We were out, you know, messing around, and we went over to this park. There was a field nearby, and uh, back then you could walk around with, you know, little bows and arrows and probably not uh, cause too much concern.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to imagine a yeah. pack of kids doing that in Pioneer Park today. I don't know if you'd get away with it, but okay, yeah. <laughs> no,
1: no, i no, not going to get away with it these days, yeah. but uh know, yeah, that was nineteen eighty something, and, and life was great. Yeah, <laughs> you could you were riding your bike, and there was open space, and you didn't have to come home till, you know, the streetlights came on at night. Yeah. And it uh, a little bit, little bit of more freedom. So these were the, was these going, were
0: the Stranger Things
1: days. <laughs> these were the Stranger Things days. Yeah. And yeah, nothing stranger than uh, a gentleman playing bagpipes in this park yeah. on the outskirts of uh, uh, the neighborhood. Right. And so I walked up to him, and I looked at him, and I said, "Hey." You're going to teach me how to play the bagpipes. There you go. And this guy, he chuckled, and he said, you know what? If I had a nickel for every kid that told me I was going to teach him how to play the bagpipes, I'd be a wealthy man. (laughs) And you know what? He was probably right, because that guy, he was a school principal for a lot of years. Oh, yeah. And uh, he used to lead uh, the Halloween parade at at the elementary school. He would lead that dressed in his kilt and playing the bagpipes. Mm. That principal was uh, Don Baxter.
0: Oh, the Baxters! Look at that. I just talked to Bruce just a week or two ago. I don't know how. I don't know in what order these are going to release, you know, and so sure. it, it gets shuffled just a little bit. But once this episode releases, I will probably have not that long before released the the interview with with uh, Bruce.
1: Well, it's 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 funny. The Baxters have a connection to a lot of uh, people here in uh, the piping community yeah. in, in in Salt Lake and. Well, in Utah, in general, yeah. um, you know, even listening to uh, your um, episode with Larry Erdman. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, you know, good, good, good old Larry. Yeah. It, it's funny, and there's a, a story with Larry too that uh, involves my father. Uh, I hope it's Larry... embarrassing. If
0: it's embarrassing, you, you got to tell it.
1: <laughs> I got to tell it. Yeah. No, I I love Larry to death. In fact, this outbuilding uh, w- that we were talking about, my kind of studio yeah. office space out here, uh, Larry was the electrician that helped wire oh, all this. Oh
0: really? On. What a great guy.
1: So yeah, I, I love him to death. He, he was a, a boy scout, and he went and attended uh, a camp up at Camp Mapledale, which is mm. up Payson Canyon.
0: Yeah, I've been up that camp when I was a kid as well, yeah.
1: Fun! My father, uh, from Milford, he, he, uh, he was uh, a real big scouter, and he went on... Uh, back in the time, BYU offered a survival course, and you would go on this, literally like a 300-mile hike, and learn to live off the land. A, a gentleman named Larry Dean Olson ran that program, and uh, my father participated in that, and uh, he was real keen on all the, the scouting, and he ended up being a, a counselor up there at Camp Mapledale. And Larry Erdman was a scout uh, that, when my father had arrived and they were highlighting things, uh, stuck out in his mind, because my dad had just recently come back from survival, and these young kids heard the stories and knew what a, a, an achievement and accomplishment that was. Mm. And the funniest thing is, um, Larry uh, he holds those Kayleys. Uh, yeah, he, I think you talked about that. And of course, if you haven't been invited, he'll he'll invite you shortly to Cayley uh, yeah. where everybody can come and do some of the the social dances, the the Scottish dances. Yeah,
0: he's got a tune uh, book you can review before you get there and stuff. He's got it set up real nice.
1: Yeah, bring your small pipes, bring your tennis' bring you anything, and you're welcome to sit and jam and mm-hmm. uh, you know play the music from those books and. It's a fun social uh, time. My kids, my children love uh, going to those Cayleys. And w- at a Cayley probably 20 years ago now, well, no, even more than that, it's got to be 25 years or so. Jeez, I'm getting old. Uh, my, my, we, we went to attend to this and uh, brought my, uh, my brothers and uh, my dad came along, and they were sitting and they were chatting, and, and suddenly the revelation washed over both uh, my dad and Larry yeah. that they had met at Camp uh, Mapledale, uh, years and years before right. and uh, it, at the camp I don't know if you it I mean it, been must, it, it would have
0: had to have been decades before right like really oh, years yeah. and years and years before yeah when they were kids Yeah, I mean,
1: long before missions and marriage and children and yeah. careers you know these guys were uh, were up at camp and uh, that year my dad uh, somebody had found a, a very large rattlesnake and my dad and another individual uh, you know killed that snake and apparently that snake skin still hangs up at uh, Camp Maple I guess it's on one of the Otherwise, it used to hang at the trading post. Yeah, I was going to say, it's at the trading post. I
0: saw it, yeah. yeah.
1: You've seen it? I know the yeah. skin so, you mean, yeah. So my dad killed that snake, and uh, then they ended up serving it, uh, you know, cooked it up, and so the kids that were there at the time <laughs> could, could sample some of that snake. And Larry Erdman was one of the guys that got a taste of that very snake.
0: Oh, this is too perfect. This is too beautiful. <laughs> and, you know, I was so just, small world. Yeah, small world, man. And I was just talking with uh, the, the Christmas episode this year. I was talking with uh, Aaron... Who she's actually moved out of Utah now, but she started piping with Wasatch a few years ago. And her husband huh? is uh, what do you call him? A herpetologist. He, he studies mm. snakes and, and lizards and stuff. And we were talking about the difference between being poisonous and venomous. That, like, you know, if you can eat it versus if it bites you, you'll get poisoned, you know? And then sure. my, my buddy Jeremy, who has the Way to Twag uh, podcast of uh, bagpipes and, and bagpipe history, he he messaged me afterward. He's like, you're, you're ruining what I thought the West was. I thought in the West you like served like rattlesnake burgers at McDonald's and stuff. And I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> well, now it's been revealed. Yes, we eat a lot of rattlesnakes out in these parts. <laughs>
1: well, I could, I could go on with more snake eating stories, but yeah, we won't. We'll, we'll get back on track be here. another but...
0: episode. <laughs>
1: Yeah, just just to paint a picture of how small this world is, yeah, uh, you know, though. there there there's Larry eating you know rattlesnake at uh, but Camp Mapledale that you've seen the snake skin and yeah uh, that's that's how that all came yeah, about. It was cool, it, it was a pretty big snake and so they've hung on to it all these years. Here yeah. we are, decades later, and that snakeskin still hangs <laughs> up there at uh, the, cool. <laughs> the lodge. Yeah. So uh, anyway, back on track. Um, Don Baxter, I approach him. And tell him he's going to teach me how to play the bagpipes. He laughs and chuckles, and uh, he he kind of brushed me off because a lot of kids say, hey, I want to learn the bagpipes, and right. they so, never do. They kind of peter out. Yeah. But uh, I was persistent, and uh, he actually uh, didn't live too far from my house. Again, he just walked over to practice at the park, and I walked from my house to... to uh, to run go around with bows and and, or something and, yeah, yeah with bows and arrows and, <laughs> yeah. and, and uh, cause all kinds of mischief yeah. and ran into him so on another occasion i ran into him again yeah. and uh i persisted he said look if you're really serious i'll give you the name of a man who will teach you um i i really don't do lessons mm-hmm. but uh here's a guy that will and he he gave me the name and phone number and that was uh, dennis mcmaster who oh, was the sure. pipe major at the yeah. salt lake scots at the time so i called dennis up and uh uh, told him I was you know interested and he kind of told me what it was going to take and in the commitment level and uh that Christmas I'd been so in, interested and involved in pursuing this my parents ended up giving me a uh uh practice chanter and mm-hmm. a little you know starter book a little set they bought at Edinburgh Castle you know down oh Eric sure, yeah. Grand, so yep. Main Street there so I ended up with a practice chanter and a little uh workbook and I started learning the and whatnot. And, uh, And your parents were all for it?
0: They didn't have any misgivings about having a kid learn to play pipes?
1: (laughs) Surprisingly, no. Maybe they didn't know what Uh, they were getting into, huh? (laughs) Well, they had encouraged me to to get into music. Uh, And so I was playing the clarinet, I think, in Mm. fourth grade. And uh, they'd come to the the band concerts. And uh, if you've been to those elementary school band concerts, uh, you know how painful those (laughs) can be. Yeah, if you
0: survived those, you can survive a kid learning on practice, Channer. (laughs) right. So yeah.
1: I, they, they were supportive in that. And, and uh, yeah, I started taking me out to, to Dennis's house for lessons and mm-hmm. taking lessons once a week. And then eventually, uh, probably within about the span uh, of a year, maybe just a little less, I was on the pipes and uh, practicing with uh, the Salt Lake Scots and been with, uh, been with that band ever since. Yeah, and, and did uh, you say
0: you were, what, 10, 11 when you picked this up?
1: Yep. yep. Man, you, so, so
0: you, you've been around with the Scots for a minute then, huh?
1: At, like I say, about thirty-two years now. That is uh, yeah, pretty I'm darn. Mid forties, cool. and it's it's been fun. It's been good. Yeah. And I and part of it, I think, you know, especially back then, uh, there was uh, this real air of um, not speaking to or being friends with other pipe bands. Right. Yes. This comes <laughs>
0: up a lot. Yeah. It used to be so much more tribal than. <laughs> It yeah. was, <laughs> uh, yeah, and
1: that's that's the perfect word. It it, it really was tribalism at its uh, at its core. Uh, and what's so fascinating is we have so much in common, and uh, to to be so divided. and And I get that there's that competition, and you're sure. trying to compete. And you want the best, and you're trying to recruit the best or retain the best. And and uh, if somebody goes from one side to the other, there's that feeling of betrayal, or yep. you know, you're a traitor, and you know none of that needs to exist. Right? <laughs> like we
0: we got, we needed to get to where we can just compete on the green on the day and Absolutely. other than that we're all one big family
1: and I think that's what's beautiful about like Larry Yerdman's mm-hmm. Kaylee Hour you know, yep. where you get together with him with people from different bands, different walks of life and, and you just have fun yeah. and uh, yeah I, I want to continue to promote and foster you know that kind of uh, energy here in, in our community, in the Pipe Bank community here in Utah and I, I think your you know, podcast is, is key to that Here's uh, hope, getting man. to know one another so I'm, I'm I'm glad and I'm honored to participate in it with you.
0: Well, thanks for coming on, man. But we we are hardly getting started. Tell me what else you, you know.
1: <laughs> we haven't scratched the surface. I'll yeah I'll give you several episodes worth of things. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I ended up in the band. Uh, if I kind of fast forward and do a condensed version of of all of that, I ended up uh, competing with the band. I went. Uh, uh, well, and it's funny uh, you get involved in this and I always warn people when they say I want to learn how to play the bagpipes or I'm thinking of joining the band yeah. it sounds like a fun hobby uh, yeah. <laughs> I have to correct them it's more than a hobby yeah. You know, if you treat it like a hobby you're not really going to do very much or go very far with it being part of a pipe band being part of this it, it really does get in your blood and it becomes a lifestyle
0: yeah i wonder you know, if the bagpipes will even allow anyone to do it as a casual hobby like it seems like even if you didn't want to you can get sucked in a lot deeper than that <laughs> it,
1: absolutely yeah. you know the bagpipes that they, they have a magic you know yeah. the sound just stirs something in the in, in the soul uh and when we talk about the bagpipes in the context of it being a martial instrument uh, you know that military background and in, in association you know, it was those pipes that you know led men onto the battlefield. Uh, you know, prior to and up to World War One, it spoke to people and uh, it, it it stirred them up to you know great heroic acts mm. uh, and in a way that you know a tuba is not going to do. <laughs> <And> so. <laughs> There's, there's something about the pipes, and, and it's I'm interesting. I'm going to get a lot of
0: hate mail from the crossover tuba from, crowd that listen to this right? podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
1: no offense. Tuba definitely has its place and its purpose, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you're, you're just not charging the battlefield with, uh, with, with the tuba or the sousaphone. It just <laughs> it doesn't have that same effect. Yeah. And that, I think, is the difference. Uh, if you're treating it, and you can kind of hear it when people talk about uh, being a, a piper, you know those that are treating it casually those that are kind of approaching it as a hobby it's like well I, I play the bagpipes mm-hmm. those that are part of this that it's become that lifestyle for them they identify themselves as a piper <laughs> yeah. I am a yeah, piper
0: that is, that's an interesting point yeah.
1: in, in, in a way that you know most other people unless you are a concert you know pianist or you know violinist you identify that's part of what defines you mm, that is yeah. who you are and when you talk to pipers, they generally will say, hey, I'm a piper. Yeah. You know, I'm a drummer. It becomes part of what defines you as a person. And mm. uh, it becomes part of your identity. And you're proud to wear that kilt. You know, whether it's the, the Salt Lake Scotts Tartan or, you know, that of Wasatchin District or Utah or, you know, Garden Valley, anybody, you you wrap yourself in that clan tartan. It is your identity, that band tartan, it's your uniform, and you pick up that instrument and you go out and you compete with it, and you, you end up participating in a way in people's lives uh, too that mm-hmm. uh, I think helps solidify that, that identity as a piper when you go out and help people mourn uh, the, the loved ones lost at the graveside, when you celebrate the weddings in um, those milestones in, in people's lives, when you participate in, in even in parades, uh, you know, that celebrate that patriotic air, you're participating in moments that, uh, that really kind of help define who you are, and it solidifies uh, that, uh, that purpose as a piper mm. in, uh, in a way that a lot of other, you know, band instruments just don't,
0: uh, just don't do for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, that's beautiful. And it definitely resonates. I I can see what you're saying. Absolutely. I I've wondered before if part of it is the um, like there's the intense community aspect of at least competitive piping, of course, where um, you know you you're part of this group effort. It's not just you by yourself. And then I also wonder, is there a sort of like a a bar for entry that's high enough, you know, with the you know the physical difficulty of of getting the instrument to work and um, the technical skills that are required and uh, and the even the monetary cost of the instrument that make it so that anybody who, who per who persists long enough is definitely going to be passionate about it. Like if you weren't passionate about it, it it kind of like, uh, it it like makes the pool of people doing it smaller and really only the most intensely interested people are going to be in that pool. Does does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I think you're right. Uh, it, it really does,
1: uh, separate you know the 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 serious from from you know the the Mm -hmm. casual Mm -hmm. it uh, has a way of winnowing out uh, uh, those less uh, dedicated and Mm -hmm. passionate about it and and sure so that does lead uh, as you say to those that make it being you know very committed Mm -hmm. and uh, that probably leads to that passion out on the competition field and again that kind of tribalism <laughs> that, yeah that, that's that, that that's exists Point and, that, and that
0: might be one of the negative side effects of exactly the same thing what an interesting point
1: might 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 well be uh, so and, anyway and yeah. And I had, some
0: of your projects like like the pipes of war thing as well as just some of you know just i feel like i can hear it and feel it in the way you talk about it as well do you feel like your um your Your father's well or excuse me your grandfather's um, military experience and having that be part of your family lineage has an effect on your approach to piping as well
1: a, a little bit, yeah, uh, and actually kind of what's interesting yes, you know what you're saying definitely true and mm. a part of it, but I think the the appreciation I have for the service my grandfather rendered uh, our country in World War II really deepened through experience in researching uh, pipers in war and then ultimately in starting to uh, move forward with our pipes of war project uh, mm-hmm. to go to the battlefields, the battle sites um, and participate even just in some of the, uh, the funerals here in our state of Utah as we've uh, recognized uh, or mourned uh, fallen uh, soldiers um, that have you know come home uh, in, in different memorial uh, services as well. Uh, you know whether you're piping for the uh, anniversary of um, Pearl Harbor uh, or you're at the Veterans cemetery on you know Memorial Day, uh, and you have these individuals that come up to you uh, that are you know veterans. And you know they're thanking you, mm. uh, and they're being moved by what you're doing. I, I remember a few years back, I had uh, I was out at uh, uh, the veteran cemetery there at Camp Williams. Yeah. And uh, an individual came up, and uh, he had uh, received uh, some traumatic injuries uh, in in a conflict over in uh, the Middle East. And uh, he came uh, over to me, and on you know prosthetic legs and you know arm, and you're just uh, for him to come up and, and be moved to tears by what I was doing uh, mm. and to thank me. I had, you know it was incredibly humbling. It just it was this gut punch that here's a, an individual. I owe my freedom to everything I enjoy. You know he went and paid for uh, in such a, a, a physical and tangible way that I can see that. And you know it's left and forever changed his life. He paid that price for me it was incredibly humbling and moving and it, it helped me maybe i think I, I always tried to understand what my grandfather had done or others do in service but in moments like that you just it comes home in a, in a very visceral and an emotional way mm-hmm. uh, where it's that gut punch that there are men that have you know stood up to provide us with the security, with the freedom, with our way of life. And uh, it comes at a price and one I haven't personally paid. Uh, somebody else paid that debt for me and I benefit from it. And so if I'm able to pipe and, and express my gratitude that way for him, it's, uh, it's the least I can do. Mm-hmm. And I can't think of a better way to, to use that talent uh, than mm-hmm. to honor those, those men and women. And so I think over the course of my piping career, and the work I've done researching Pipers of War and uh, again, you know, playing for those kind of memorial services, you come to that understanding and appreciation. And uh, so, yeah, when you ask that you know, question, you know, does one lead to the other? I think, you know, both have uh, given me a, a deeper understanding of those who, you know, serve in the military and what they go through and uh uh, again you know why i why
0: i pipe Hmm. i see now this feels like a a natural spot for me to ask you to give me kind of a maybe not a pitch but an overview of or a pitch however you like an overview of this pipes of pipes and war project you know the traveling that you've done the the documentaries you've worked on what what is the project how did it take shape what is it what's happened with it so far what's its future that kind of stuff okay The, uh,
1: really the way it kind of came about, when I was learning how to play the pipes, uh, you know, Dennis, uh, he wouldn't just teach me the fingering or, you know, the tunes. He had the presence of mind to share a little bit of the history of the pipes and and people who played the pipes. And he had on his bookshelf a little uh, volume called The Pipes of War. This book uh, details—it's it's kind of the record of, of achievements of pipers during the Great War. Uh, it was published in originally in 1920, so two years after the end of World War One. And in there, it uh, highlights all the different regiments, uh, Scottish regiments, and, and their pipers, and kind of what they did. And it's the role of Honor, and and there's some other little uh, anthology-type, you know, stories or histories that uh, were compiled into this book. And in one section some of the achievements there's uh, little paragraphs uh that highlight actions in which pipers were involved and what those pipers did mm. and i remember him reading uh one of those to me uh it was the story of james richardson he was a 20 year old uh, piper out of uh, canada born in scotland immigrated to canada went and fought in world war one and uh was awarded the victoria cross which is the highest medal for valor uh in the Commonwealth, kind of like our our Medal of Honor here mm-hmm. in, the, in the United States, it's uh, their equivalent. And he uh, he's the only Canadian piper to have ever been awarded uh, such such an honor. In fact, mm-hmm. there are only three pipers in all of history that have earned the Victoria Cross, and he was the youngest. Mm-hmm. So Dennis shared that story with me, and, and I don't know why it it touched me. It connected. I it maybe because he was. Young and I was young at the time. Sure, um, yeah. But there was just something about that story that sparked an interest and stuck with me. Um, so much so that when uh, in 2000, I want to say it was 2003, uh, yeah, 2002, 2003, roughly, there was some chatter uh, out there in internet and in kind of a few of the piping circles about uh, a set of bagpipes that had been discovered in a school display case in Scotland. It was in uh, Creve, Scotland. uh, A private school called Ardvreck. These bagpipes uh, were battle damaged, (laughs) covered in the mud and blood of of the Somme. uh, The Somme, for for those that don't know, was uh, a British military engagement uh, in World War One, and it took place in 1916. July 1st, 1916 was the opening uh, engagement or opening salvo for the Battle of the Somme. It took place in the Somme River Valley in France along the Western Front. And to this day, it is still considered the bloodiest day in British military history. 60,000 casualties occurred that day uh, for the British forces and uh, nothing's compared uh, to that since for, for them and this uh, James Richardson you know, participated in in that and when you say the Battle of the Somme, it wasn't a battle that just took place one day it was a an engagement in uh, multiple battles uh, that uh, took place over a several month period uh, the Battle of the Somme did not come to a close until uh, probably uh, November of uh, that same year and so from July to November the Battle of the Somme raged in, uh, in that area um, these pipes uh were covered in in the mud of of that that battle and they they were sitting in this display case and what uh, i'm trying to think of the best way to articulate some of the story because there's so much information to share yeah but uh and and so forgive me if i started to trip up a little bit because there's there's so many so many things here to 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 share about it um and I'm trying to do it kind of in that chronological way because my research has given me, you know, so much more depth and understanding uh, now. But at the time, there was uh, some thought that these bagpipes might belong to James Richardson and that, uh, you know, further study, you know, may reveal that. And that was intriguing. Um, Dennis, uh, at the time, uh, you know, brought that to my attention and I got excited. I'm going, oh, wow, you know, could they be these bagpipes that belong to this piper? 2003, uh, an individual uh, named um, Roger McGuire, he was the pipe major for the uh, Canadian Scottish Regiment uh, up in um, Victoria, British Columbia. He went over to uh, Scotland to kind of verify and uh, if these pipes, you know, belonged. And so I guess maybe the, the way to draw that connection is, is to kind of go back just two steps. The reason uh, those bagpipes came to light uh, and were brought uh, to kind of the, the conversation <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, was that that school in, in Creef, Scotland, um, Arbrek, it had just barely gotten... Uh, connected to the internet, I think that was 2001, maybe, <laughs> in the 2000-2001 they connected the and, and if you go over there, this school is awesome, I mean it yeah. is it, it is this stone castle of a of a, school, a private school it's been around for, you know, over 100 years, it's, it, it, it looks like Hogwarts, to be honest yeah. with you from Harry Potter fame <laughs> right, yeah. and so um, this school has a little bagpipe band, uh, and there was a gentleman named Thomas Christie Thomas uh, had students, uh, children, attending, and it's a boarding school, um, and he encouraged them to to learn the pipes, and when the internet was connected, he was interested in helping the students uh, understand how powerful a tool the internet was, and and it was going to be for them. Uh, He had uh, had some business dealings and such, and and knew uh, what the internet could do, and he in traveling down and visiting the school, he was familiar with this set of pipes that uh, sat in the school display case. In the school library, there was this massive wall that had this glass display case. And in it, all the the good old boys from the school, all the alumni, they would, in their travels all around the the empire, they would send back little novelties, little tokens and knickknacks from all over. And that display case essentially became the school, what they'd say, the school museum. Mm-hmm. There's a mummified bird from Egypt. There's uh, various, you know, crystals from mm-hmm. uh, different, you know, parts. There's uh, I'm trying to remember everything that was in there. I think there was a, a stuffed, you know, snake from India. And, you know, <laughs> various uh, interesting things that uh, dated back to some of the that Victorian uh, period uh, when. Members uh, were traveling to uh, the different parts of the British Empire, and then they'd send back those little knickknacks and tokens, and they'd be uh, dated and, and have a little tag that said, you know, where they came from and, and when and what they were, and it was this eclectic collection of, of items. But in one section, there were these uh, items from uh, with the Great War, uh, and so there was, you know, shell casings or you know shell art. There were fragments from you know various. Uh, uh, High explosive artillery rounds uh, that were sitting in, in this display case, but among all those things, there was this set of pipes, and the pipes had a, a bag cover and pipe ribbons that were a unique plaid. And Thomas, whose uh, family had also served uh, in in the military, he knew that that tartan would be unique to a particular regiment that the regiments had their. You know, whatever plaid uh, or tartan they decided to unite under mm. uh, that there would be uh, a specific regiment associated with that tartan and he thought okay, maybe we can figure out which regiment those pipes belong to based on that tartan and he was curious because in his experience he was not familiar with that particular tartan he couldn't seem to find it connected to any known Scottish regiment in the country. But he knew that there were Scottish regiments uh, abroad in various places in the Commonwealth, be it Australia or Canada. And so here was the opportunity to teach these students how to use the internet. And they started putting out inquiries uh, to various regiments uh, in various countries asking about this, you know, target, kind of describing what uh, what they had. And the description was that there were these pipes and there was a little placard uh, handwritten uh, accompanying these bagpipes in the case that said that they had uh, uh, been found near Corselette, France uh, and that they had been picked up after lying you know, exposed uh, for, you know, a couple months in uh that's Want to say it was uh, early 19, uh, you know, 17. I think it was the spring of 1917. Uh, forgive me for not remembering that uh, detail oh, verbatim. But I,
0: yeah, I, I'm going to say you're close enough. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, they had been uh, collected by uh, an individual named uh, Edward Yeld Bate. During the war, he was an army cha- chaplain, a British Army chaplain. Uh, and part of his duty was to help clear the battlefield. Uh, so after mm-hmm. uh, engagements had taken place and, and finally after uh, hostilities had passed uh, to a, enough of a safe distance, uh, he and some of the stretcher bearers and whatnot, they would come through and they would clean up uh, and inter the, the dead and uh, try and document uh, who had fallen um, and where. He had come across these pipes, uh, you know. He had said uh, that they had been laid in the open, and he gathered them up. He was Scottish, and uh, he kept them as that souvenir, as this symbol of, of uh, home and war and, and whatnot. And he, for whatever Man, what reason, a, what decided to. What
0: a duty, to, Too though. What I mean, right. That guy's life must have been hard. <laughs> what a difficult yeah. thing to do.
1: Right. It just unbelievable what uh, what some of those individuals saw and faced and yeah. uh you know in his case you know that compassion to to serve in that uh, capacity as chaplain and, and have that uh duty to to enter uh, you know those fallen soldiers yeah so he carries these pipes uh and when he's uh you know released i think he ended up being invalid at home with uh, some hearing loss mm-hmm. um he went back uh to to scotland went to creef where he returned to, uh, the teaching profession. And he was a teacher there at Creve and he put those pipes in a display case. And there they sat for what turned out to be about 90 years before Mm -hmm. Thomas Christie comes along and starts his internet search. Mm -hmm. And so armed with that information where the pipes were found, you know, near Corsolet France and the year and, uh, that idea that they were picked up in the spring of 1917 after being out in the open uh, for probably a couple months. Um, those dates and then the tartan connected with uh, Roger McGuire. Uh, yeah. Roger, uh, as I mentioned, was the, at the time serving as the pipe major for the Canadian Scottish Regiment in Victoria, British Columbia.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He recognized the important intersection of date location and pipes. Roger perpetuates, that Canadian Scottish Regiment, perpetuates the 16th Battalion Canadian Scottish from World War One. He was uniquely positioned to pick up on all that information and know the kind of the history of his pipe band, of his regiment. Mm-hmm. As pipe major he was well versed with who the previous pipe majors were, if you ever go uh, to victoria there is uh, uh, the regimental headquarters is the bay street armory and if you walk in there there is this wall and uh, there are photographs of all the pipe majors going back to uh, world war one when it originally formed the uh, there were five different militias in the area the 72nd seaforth highlanders of canada um, there were some gordons and you know there, Again, five different militias that, when World War One broke out, they combined and uh, and kind of amalgamated into one unit. In Canada, they they numbered the units, and so those five different militias combined, and they were Scottish or Highland regiments. They combined into one that was then known as the Sixteenth Battalion Canadian Scottish Regiment, and they went overseas to uh, to of course fight and. Uh, Roger knew that uh, uh, James Richardson uh, and a few other pipers, John Park and uh, this regiment, were in the late fall of 1916 fighting in an area uh, near Courcelette, France. Mm-hmm. And so when that card said that these pipes had been found near uh, it, it he perked up, and suddenly it was like, could, could it be you know could these pipes yeah. have belonged to you know one of these pipers because there were two pipers that were killed at what was known as the battle at, at regina trench
0: that's, that's what and, i was going to ask like do you have an idea of, about how many pipers would have been in that you know or we've got the intersection of time and place then how many right. pipers are we dealing with as potential owners of this set
1: we end up uh, dealing with two there was piper so was john park pretty small group yeah pretty small group there there was the regimental pipe band and that consisted of of, multiple individuals but on that particular day uh, there were five uh, regimental pipers and two were killed and uh, didn't come back and uh, were lost and their pipes were lost with them the other pipers came back and brought their pipes back so Mm -hmm. we had two individuals that we know uh, that were you know killed in action that day and whose pipes were lost to the battlefield here was a set of pipes that had been picked up by that chaplain and, and brought back and that uh, ended up surviving the war, as it were. Um, so Roger got you know, kind of excited uh, at that prospect. You know, first, it was you know a wonderful thing about you know, history that here's this tangible symbol and, and, and reminder of. The war that uh, was unique to his regiment, and uh, you know, potentially, especially based on the tartan, uh, that tartan is really kind of what uh, tied it together for uh, yeah. for them. Mm-hmm. Um, that tartan is a very rare and obscure tartan. It's called the Lennox tartan. It uh, has a little double white line in it, and it uh, is similar to the Red Scott Tartan, uh, Sir Walter Mm -hmm. Scott, and what the Salt Lake Scots actually wore originally uh, from when our Salt Lake Scots bagpipe band here organized back in 1962. It uh, decided to unite under that Red Scott Tartan, and uh, they wore that up until about 90, I want to say 97, 98, when they adopted the current tartan, uh, which is the tartan of the Salt Lake Scots pipe band. Yeah, speak, by,
0: speaking of Bruce, I saw him, I've got, I've, I've, I've seen a lot of photos of him in those early days wearing that red tartan.
1: Yeah, so this Lennox tartan uh, that was on uh, uh, this pipe bag is, is very similar to that Red Scott, but it's got a, a double white uh, line in it, and uh again, is, is rather unique, and so unique that it was ever only used by one regiment, hmm. so and that was... This doing us favors and narrowing 16th.
0: it down, isn't it? <laughs> it? It really does, and that's yeah. why you
1: know Thomas Christie initially couldn't place it, yeah, right. and what led to that internet search in the first place.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So all of that kind of combined to, to bring this uh, story to light. So these pipes, uh, you know, Roger gets kind of excited and intrigued. Uh, There's an exchange online and there's sharing of photographs and uh, it causes a bit of a stir because if those pipes were bagpipes from the 16th Battalion, which it seemed obvious that they were, then they belonged to one of two people, either John Park or James Richardson. Mm -hmm. And the prospect that they belonged to James Richardson was very exciting Mm -hmm. because those pipes would be the most famous bagpipes in Canadian history. Yeah. Because they belong to the only Canadian piper to earn a Victoria Cross. Yeah. And again, one of only 3 pipers ever to do so. So there was some significance to explore there and some reason for excitement.
0: Of course, so, no no disrespect to John Park, of course. Right. <laughs> no, no, also, not none, none whatsoever. Uh, yeah. But just yeah, as you say, there's just a, a significant amount of interest in in uh, in these pipes. Yeah, I got
1: you. Well, and, and, and importantly, too, is that it helps us remember John Park and, yeah, and what yeah. he did, you know, mm-hmm. the sacrifice he made that day. So even if they weren't his pipes, these pipes bring to memory his sacrifice, his service and who he was. Yeah. You know, there's that, uh, you know, constant, uh, you know, saying or, or uh, you know, tagline when we talk about. Uh, World War One, especially uh, from the Commonwealth side of things, and it's that idea that lest we forget. Yeah. You know, don't forget what these men did. As long as there are those who remember, mm-hmm. maybe we won't enter into such a costly conflict again. Yeah. And that's that urge or that request, that that haunting um, message. You know, mm-hmm. do not forget. You know, lest we forget. Mm-hmm. And. Another, uh, if you ever participate in some of those ceremonies uh, in the Commonwealth, uh, whether you're over in France or you know, in Canada or whatnot, uh, you know here we have you know Veterans Day, mm. you know November 11th. Uh, overseas, it's uh, generally referred to as Remembrance Day, mm. and uh, they have Remembrance Day activities, and everybody wears the poppies, and and uh, there's that idea that we need to remember, you know, and there's a poem that uh, talks uh, and often they'll recite it at these gatherings and the audience repeats the last line back and it's that you know at the going down of the sun and in the morning we will remember them Mm -hmm. and after whoever's reading it says we will remember them there's that echo from the the audience Mm -hmm. we will remember them that pledge that commitment and so yeah the idea that uh, you know these pipes may belong to Richardson or John Park. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm moved to the notion that we're remembering both those men and the yeah. sacrifice they, they made that day uh, when they led the men into battle with those pipes. Mm. Um, but certainly, uh, you know, there would be excitement over the idea that these were, you know, Jimmy's. But there was that caution, you know, not knowing whether they were going to be Richardson's pipes or mm-hmm. Park's pipes. Yeah, And so, um, the uh, 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 Roger ends up uh, traveling overseas. Uh, the regiment kind of comes together, and there's some donations. And he goes over, and he investigates, and uh, sure enough, confirms that these pipes, uh, you know, but were regimental pipes. They're a beautiful old set of uh, ivory hendersons, and uh, they, they just were fascinating. And uh, he said yeah you know these these have to be you know either jimmy's or john's based on you know what we had what they had uncovered at that point and at that juncture uh the regiment decided you know they wanted to try and acquire these from the school and yeah. uh and bring them home and that's where i start to get involved uh with this project and why i rambled on about my father being a filmmaker (laughs) I I got excited Uh, there was something in me that just a flip that switched and it was oh my gosh you know here's a story that the broader community needs to know Uh, not Mm -hmm. just the pipe band community but the world and it's an important story to be told and if I'm going to tell the story there's one way to do it and that's through film. And so I went to my dad and said, you know, Father, let me tell you a story. And I started giving him the background on James Richardson and and the pipes and this discovery. And, you know, he recognized that, yeah, there's potential here. You know, we could do a really cool little documentary on this. And so we grabbed our uh, uh, cameras and uh, we uh, learned that the pipes uh, were going to be repatriated that uh, they had been acquired uh, for the the province of British Columbia and the school was going to give those up and uh, they were going to come home mm-hmm. and that was taking place in 2006 so we
0: made it's all a, the, the this is one of the rare occasions of a British Museum of any sort being willing to send uh, an item back to its natal land right 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 well and, and I
1: think the, and I think it's because it was just you know the the private school and yeah it wasn't so much here let's hand it over uh, there yep. was uh, a monetary exchange <laughs> right yeah yep. thanks to uh, some some generous donors uh, up there in British Columbia but they yeah. did they, they were willing to, uh, to send uh, those home and that was uh, a real significant moment and what was really impressive was the way that the province of British Columbia brought those things home mm. um, those pipes came home to a hero's welcome uh, the steps of the Legislative Assembly building, kind of their capital building there in, in Victoria, uh, the premier of British Columbia, uh, some other uh, dignitaries, the regiment, uh, everybody came out, descendants from the Richardson family. Um, these things, when they came home, they came home to a hero's welcome. You know, they did what James could not. You know, he fell yeah. during World War I, and he's interred over there in, in France. But those pipes, those pipes came home. The pipes came home. Yeah, yeah. and uh, and they put those in a display case in an honored uh, space. They uh, they've been put in the uh, the rotunda of uh, the the legislative assembly hall up there, and so they occupy a a real special place. Uh, And it's interesting. We got you know involved, and even even at that point, they were calling them Richardson's Pipes, but they hadn't proven that they were indeed, you know, belonged to Jimmy. It was, you know, the belief and the assumption, and there were a couple, you know, things that they were kind of clinging to, but they wanted to do some further study. And uh, we actually got involved in that process. Uh, You know, my father and I, we began that, um, you know, researching and uh, trying to uncover uh, a lot of uh, well <laughs> we ended up uncovering a lot of uh, never before seen you know photographs uh, that contained Jimmy uh, that people had, well they'd been seen but no people had forgotten people weren't aware that James was in those images mm. um, you know people were familiar with the story of James uh, because of his action on the battlefield so they knew what his action was, why he got the Victoria Cross they knew uh, in his youth he was born in, in Scotland immigrated to Canada his father was ended up being the chief of police in Chilliwack uh, he competed in some Highland Games and, and won some you know medals uh, there in, in Vancouver and Victoria uh, but he was only there real briefly they immigrated in, in 1913 in 1914 the war breaks out he goes over so yeah. he had one season to kind of compete there and participate in that uh, British Columbia area before you know, going overseas to war. And then in uh, uh, 1916, October, October 8th, uh, is the battle in which he takes place, in which he pipes. He turns the tide of battle with the sound of those pipes and then, you know, uh, loses his life. And that's kind of it. There was one other story where he was involved in uh, the Vancouver area uh, there's a, a body of water known as False Creek, and he was working as a electrician's apprentice in a little factory there on the banks of False Creek, and there was a, a boy that ended up drowning in uh, in the creek, and he had uh, run out and jumped in the creek to try and save the boy and pull the the, the boy to shore. Um, so that was kind of the earliest heroic act, you know, the the the... The spark, or inkling, that you know here was uh, an individual willing to, uh, you know, step up and 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 rush to the the rescue of uh, of another and yeah. put himself, you know, in harm's way, and so that was it. That's all people knew about Jimmy. You know, mm-hmm. he was born in Scotland, came to Canada, had that one moment where he tried to rescue that boy, and, and then goes the overseas, and then very little, really, not a lot about uh, him. Uh, really recorded or shared um, maybe one or two minor incidents and then the major action where he gets that uh, Victoria Cross Mm. and then that's it so it was very limited and so when we set out to make this documentary we thought yeah we can maybe make a an hour documentary out of all of this there might be You know, a half hour's worth of material on Jimmy and his background and some of the family, and there's going to be another half hour worth of material on the discovery and and the repatriation of these pipes, and talking a little bit about you know bagpipes and war, and that was going to be it, and we'd submit that to you know the History Channel, the Discovery Channel, something like that. Mm -hmm. What we weren't prepared for was what we managed to uncover and learn about this young man, and. Uh, it, 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 just incredible things uh, in photographs and letters. Uh, we have uh, we uncovered a cache of over you know 200 letters uh, mm-hmm. that this uh, boy wrote home during the course of the war. Wow. And in fact, uh, one of the service postcards that he sent home was dated uh, the night before he went into battle, uh, wow, really? where he would where he would perform you know that uh, Victoria Cross winning action. Um, photographs that we ended up uncovering and it was through that, those photographs that we were able to finally authenticate those pipes as belonging to James Richardson. Mm. We have a few photographs where Jimmy uh, is standing near or or included with John Park and both of them are holding their pipes and Mm. there's some distinct, uh, even though they're, you know, quite similar as bagpipes typically are. Um, one of the differences that really helped define that these were jimmy's pipes was the chanter mm-hmm. if you look at the soul there's the ivory soul on uh, these chanters jimmy's had a, uh, a a larger opening you know the way the soul was affixed to that chanter mm-hmm. uh john park had one where the chanter the opening at the bottom there the soul was much more narrow mm-hmm. and uh, jimmy's was much more broad and again that's just the the Diameter, the width of the wood uh, in ivory, what was exposed and what was not, mm. um, and uh, through that we we're able to, uh, you know, using you know that photographic evidence, clearly define these as Jimmy's pipes. Wow! And so, uh, you know, we we helped uh, in that process, which you know was kind of fun and exciting, you know, for that us. Is exciting, but
0: yeah, that's remarkable.
1: But uh, in in that process, uh, and and why I don't have you know the uh, this unparalleled valor film, which is the title you know we named the, uh, at least the Richardson film, our pipes War project, uh, released yet is, in uncovering all of that material, and getting those letters and starting to learn who Jimmy, you know was, um, we realized we had more than. An hours worth of material here and yeah. if we were going to do this film we needed to do it right and we realized we had to expand our project and uh, that's what we've been in the process of doing uh, we expanded it so much so <laughs> that uh, we realized okay this is going to be a feature-length documentary yeah. and in fact we're going to do this in a ground-breaking way that's going to blend narrative storytelling you know the dramatic uh, elements of a, of a major motion picture mm-hmm. with a, a documentary you know film because we want to uh, anytime you see a movie everybody goes oh it's, it's dramatized there's you know that's you know hollywood right. <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh and then when you watch your documentary films they're just doctors go, well it's educational it might be interesting but you know, it's not that emotional, visceral roller coaster ride. It's a, it's uh, that, a
0: textbook on screen.
1: Yeah, you know, yeah. we mm. wanted to combine the two in a way that uh, was, you know, more groundbreaking and, and pushed and elevated the art of, of storytelling from a documentary perspective and from a narrative film perspective. Yeah. Because everybody can see it based on a true story or, you know, this is a true story and they go, yeah, but you've dramatized it. You know, we wanted to create a way where uh, we were doing a little bit of both and uh, telling the story, but making sure people knew it was accurate and, uh, you know, reaffirm that this, these things really did happen and happen yeah. the way, you know, that, that they're being told. And that's because, you know, we have Jimmy's writings. We have these never-before-seen uh, letters and documents. Uh, from yeah, did you read through all the, the letters? Answers?
0: Oh, yeah. I got to yeah. I've got to imagine that was that would have been an experience kind of you know kind of a deep getting to know a person that that you know isn't always possible with someone who's lived so long before the one reading you know how do you get to know a well, person you know but you're seeing their handwriting and hearing their voice the way that they write you know
1: Exactly uh, you, you hit the nail on the head uh it's funny sometimes i get talking about Jimmy and and i've had people tell me you know you, you, you talk about him as though he were you know here he were yeah. alive like you knew him like a best friend and you know Jane, I'll, I'll tell you I after spending the last you know now uh, you know pushing a decade um, researching and coming to know this individual through his own writings through his descendants through You know the history books through going over. I've been over uh, to France on a couple of occasions now, and I've been to Scotland. I've walked where he walked. Mm. I know, you know, in the village where he was born, you know, raised, Uh, the church he attended, um, and it fell through the skylight. That's a whole you know fun story too. He gets locked out of uh, the church. The The church service starts. He and his friend were kind of screwing around, and they were late. And his parents were, you know, very strict, staunch Presbyterians. And, uh, you know, (laughs) button-up Presbyterians. And uh, they're seated in the the front pews, and he's sitting there with his friend going, oh, no, you know, it's already started. And uh, they go, well, you open the door. Well, I'm not going to open the door. and get yelled at. You open the door. And uh, they decide to climb up on uh, the roof to look through the skylight to see if, in fact, uh, you know, the service is going. And uh, he ends up leaning too far and uh, crashes through the skylight and (laughs) falls Falls down and lands between the pews uh, by his know. family. And, uh, <laughs> almost on yeah. target. <laughs> yeah, almost yeah. on target. But uh, you know, we 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 chuckle and say that you know maybe that's why the family immigrated to Canada it was <laughs> to get away from the embarrassment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so you know, it's those kind of delightful anecdotes where you really do start to come to know somebody. Yeah. Uh, even yeah. though they've passed away. Um, I, I do. I feel like I've I've come to know uh, Jimmy in a in a way that most people don't, yeah. and it's also kind of funny too because when we started this process, you know, we were the ones seeking information and we mm-hmm. were talking to uh, you know, newspaper reporters that had written articles about James uh, mm-hmm. that had done some research and were asking them, well, you know, where did you learn this? You know, who did you talk to about that? And, so we went to the regimental archives, we went to the museum directors, we went to everybody and anybody we possibly could, and then started uncovering, you know, these items uh, in different places, you know, whether, and yeah. in, in, in where some family members might have known some things or had some things that others didn't, uh, you know, it took really getting to know various descendants. Uh, and, uh, again, you know, regimental uh, people and, and even descendants of people in the regiments, people that had served with Jimmy, you know, that had carried down stories. So that after uh, a number of years, as we were making inquiries, uh, you know, we'd talk to people and they go, oh, well, you know what, I know this or that, but really the people you need to talk to, um, you know, this was asking up in Canada, uh, you know, they're going, well, really... You, there's a couple of guys you probably need to talk to i think they're based down in the states <laughs> you know they're down mm. in Utah, and pretty <laughs> soon these the guys foremost were
0: foremost experts <laughs>
1: exactly you know that now we were being people were referring people to us saying "Well, yeah. oh, you know we're not i'm not the expert but i can tell you who is and yeah. that was kind of an interesting transition to be the guy that suddenly was the foremost authority on well
0: you've kind of been bringing all the these Richardson all these story. all these loose ends together huh Exactly, yeah. and
1: so we tied uh, so much together uh, in his history yeah. that uh, we we have emerged as the preeminent authority on mm. uh, Piper Richardson uh, and the, the 16th Battalion Canadian Scottish uh, during World War One, and it's given me um, interesting you know opportunities and to be approached by individuals. I've you know done various. Mm. Uh, you know, interviews, and I've uh, worked on uh, some uh, books and articles and things like that for uh, this project. And so that's how this project began, how I first heard about, you know, Jimmy being told by Dennis at at Pipe Lessons when I was a 12, 13-year-old kid, going up till... The discovery of those pipes and then the yeah. repatriation and getting to know Roger McGuire up in Canada and all the principals involved in that, and then the Richardson family. And it just kind of metastasized and grew. And I recognized okay, we're going to do this film, we're going to do this story on Jimmy, and we're going to do some books and things with it. Um, I'm telling the story of one Piper who are in the Victoria Cross, but. I went back to my dad and I said, Dad, there, there are three, you know, that earned the VC. There are you know, more. We need, He's not the we only We need one. to tell those stories. Yeah. And so we came up with uh, uh, this, this Pipes of War project where we're going to tell those three um, VC stories on film.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: First will be a film called Unparalleled Valor, the story of James Richardson VC. Uh, then um, one of the other Pipers was uh, uh, Daniel Laidlaw, he was the Piper of Luz, the Battle of Lose, uh, around Christmas time. Oh, yes. uh, okay. 19, yeah, I, yeah.
0: I, I saw the. I this is just. I don't want to. Sorry, I, I shouldn't have cut you off. No, go I, ahead. I just, Please. I seen the website, and so I that this is bringing back the images of those those uh, titles along the bottom of the website. Um, sure. So yeah, and, Luce, and then the other yeah.
1: one is the hero of Dar, or, uh, the hero of Dargai, which is right, uh, yeah. George Finladder. Uh, yeah. and he uh, that yeah. was during the Indian uprising that took place during the Boer War uh, time frame and so the late 1800s there Uh, and so those those are the three that will you know feature in uh, three feature length documentaries Uh, we have filmed and shot an awful lot of film for unparalleled valor Mm -hmm. Uh, all the elements i I could tomorrow cut a you know basic documentary together for it Mm -hmm. but as i explained we really kind of wanted to change the landscape of documentary filmmaking a little bit here Mm -hmm. and so We set about trying to get uh, the funds to do that, and uh, we found it to be a little bit more challenging than usual, Mm. because one, we were Americans trying to tell the story of a Canadian bagpiper, Mm -hmm. so American funding was like, well, you know, why not tell an American story? (laughs) Isn't that that just like us,
0: huh? Why are you talking about them for? Why don't you talk about us?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Or then you go up to Canada, and suddenly it's like, well, why are Americans trying to tell our national Yeah, who the heck are you? (laughs) Right? So we ran into some of those, and then we were working on getting money out of uh, Scotland. And, uh, you know, James, we came so close on uh, several occasions. Uh, But then you had uh, Scotland back during that period really pushing for independence, and some of the people were um, talking about putting money up for this project, ended up uh, dumping it into some of the political you know campaigns and things up there, and then of course even recently, you know with Brexit and whatnot, we've yeah. had just some struggles, and so that's when uh, my father and I we were approached uh, with this idea to do this America Box Stand film, and uh, it, it's a work for hire. It was another individual's project he brought mm-hmm. to us, and we we decided okay, you know we'll we'll take this project on, even though it kind of interrupts what we're doing with the Pipes of War, mm-hmm. um, and we'll go take care of this film in hopes that the money and the return on it, we can parlay into the pipes of war and and finally get uh, some of the filming on it done that that we need done in order to complete uh, that uh, that Unparalleled Valor film at least. So that was the reason for taking on uh, America Boxed In. Mm -hmm. We've got that done now, it's in the festival circuit, Uh, we're working on a distribution deal uh, once that's done, uh, then hopefully we can get uh, uh, everything with the pipes of war back on track. Yeah. In the meantime, I've actually been developing um, a pipes of war podcast, uh, where,
0: hey.
1: yeah, you know, <laughs> you step into the the, the pipes uh, yeah. world here, the piping community on podcasting. Yeah. Um, the reason there uh, is that I want to do these at least three stories on you know film and have that kind of that trilogy. Uh, and have accompanying books and things like that that go along with them, but there, there were over a thousand pipers that were either killed or wounded in World War One alone, mm. and there have been pipers in other engagements since. You know, we talk about you know Bill Milland, you know the the Mad Piper at Normandy, uh, oh sure, yeah, you know Storm Sword Beach, uh, you know with uh, Lord Levant and, and uh, we Pegasus Bridge, you know piping. Uh, you have. Uh, Others, you know, from the Boer War period or, or even before, mm-hmm. uh, you know, going back to, you know, James Reed and Cloden and the other uh, Pipers, there's so many stories that could and should be told. Yeah. There are Pipers still out there uh, with, uh, you know, various regiments. Um, and though they don't lead men uh, charging into the battlefield, you know, like, uh, you know, Richardson and, and some of those guys did back in World War I, they're still out there today Inspiring the troops, um, you know, it, 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 there's that question, you know, why, why do you pipe, you know, as a, as a soldier? And it's, there's a purpose to the bagpipes. Um, you know, there was a saying once that, you know, the bagpipes are worth a hundred guns. Mm. Because they speak, that piper speaks to those soldiers. Mm. That sound reminds them of, you know, their home, of their forefathers you know, of the, the love they left behind. And it reminds them of the future they hope to shape. You know, it's, it's telling them home is just beyond the next trench. Mm-hmm. And so those pipers, uh, the, the esprit de corps they bring to, to those around them uh, is invaluable. Uh, and, and like I said, one uh, uh, military leader said that, you know, a piper is worth 100 guns he he meant it it had that kind of effect and and stirred the men up that way so there are important stories that i want to tell and uh, that should be remembered uh, just like we were talking about john park yeah. and so i i intend to uh, and have already begun uh, you know developing that pipes of war podcast to tell those individual stories uh, in a in Kind of whether they're they're longer or episodic to cover uh, someone I know is, is in depth as James Richardson, or you know there's some that we don't have much information on that you know yeah. be much shorter you know single episode, um, but important to tell nonetheless. And
0: so, it, and just wh- listening to you talk about it it's exciting to me to imagine, you know, just think about like the Richardson story how what you started with was not nearly the body of of uh of resources that you now have right it's like in that process of kind of starting to tell the story or diving into it you kind of find more stuff it's exciting to me to just imagine the prospect of like well what if you do have this this tiny tiny piece of information about this one piper in this conflict and you tell the story in the podcast or in the book or something like that right but somebody who listens or reads it goes hey you know what my grandpa was there and he said this, you know, and then someone else says, hey, you know what else? I've got this box of stuff over here and in it is this, you know, uh, a roll call for, for you know, uh, a group that went on in out in that conflict. You know, like who knows how, yeah, how many absolutely. more things could, could start accumulating, almost like a magnetic center, you know, and, and as it as more things are drawn to it, it gets bigger and more powerful and so even more things get drawn to it, you know what I mean? oh yeah yeah
1: absolutely and then that's what's exciting to me uh yeah. because i have experienced that uh, to a certain degree already yeah. in uh doing the research on these other pipers that yeah what what wonderful things will we uncover in the histories we can we can tell and preserve and, and help yeah. perpetuate uh you know for me uh like i said you know being a piper it's, it's part of what defines me i yeah my personal experience i uh Certain LDS mission. I had, uh, come up through, you know, the, the, ranks in the pipe band up until, uh, and played with them from, you know, being 11 years old up until like 18, 19, when I go off on this LDS mission, I come back from my mission thinking, okay, I got to get back into school. I uh, got to do this, got to do that. Uh, maybe, maybe I won't return to the pipe band right away. I'll mm-hmm. take care of some of those other things. Yeah. Um, but then I saw the band perform once without me. <laughs> yeah, I'm <laughs> sure they did it,
0: huh?
1: <laughs> oh, it was like a kick to the gut, like this knife stab right in my back, and it was yeah. my own doing—that I wasn't back. But I saw yeah. them out there without me, and it was like, oh no, you know that pain was just too excruciating. I, I no matter what I was going to have to do to juggle pipe band and studies and every other aspect of life, I was, I was hooked. I had to be, yeah. be back in the band and. So I think the very next week I went back to band practice. (laughs) All right, here I I I am. I've returned.
0: Like different seasons of life, you sometimes have to step away. But that has been a very common experience that other people have brought up with me as well. That like, if you have to skip a season, it hurts. (laughs) Yeah. When you hear the band striking up and you're standing on the side, you're not there with them. No, it makes you sick. You got to get back into it.
1: Yeah, it's. Yeah, and and like I say, that's why it's not just a hobby; it's yeah. it's a lifestyle. It gets in the blood. Yeah. And now, for me, it's it's my fa- every one of my family uh, plays and participates. I uh,
0: you've achieved the dream it, it, that, what well, we're all <laughs> shooting for. You got them all roped in.
1: Well, interestingly enough, it was uh, because I ended up marrying one of Dennis's daughters,
0: uh, ah, Alana. His, well, that his was second. good planning on your part. <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> well that's funny because you know we we're friends growing up but I for her part there was it's just it's a friend it's like a brother he's one of the band yeah. members in fact yeah. she had promised herself that she and her sisters had a pact that they would not date anybody in the band and they would not marry a piper they actually <laughs> wrote a contract
0: because it's like maybe that's smart actually yeah <laughs> <Keep things laughs> <in> separate boxes yeah <laughs>
1: Well, right. Well, for them, it's because their parents met through the pipe band as well.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So, yeah. going back clear to to Don Baxter and yeah. that when the the Salt Lake Scots, you know, organized, um, one of the founding members was was Don, but also was Myron O'Connor. Uh, Myron had a daughter named Kathleen O'Connor. Kathleen was a Highland dancer. Uh, in in the Salt Lake Scots group early on, the White Heather Dancers that uh, was part of our organization. And uh, she met a piper named Dennis McMaster when Dennis was just coming into the pitcher and and learning. And uh, that was under, um, at the time, I want to say it was Bruce Hanson was the uh, pipe major. And so you had the Hanson family, Bruce and then his son, you know, Doug was a a talented drummer, uh, was one of our lead drummers for a lot of years. And then his uh, sons uh, Jason Hanson, Brandon Hanson, uh, they were all you know drummers and in, in involved in the uh, pipe band community here. Um, anyway, uh, Dennis, uh, being just a piper at the time, he and Kathleen met, uh, fell in love, and married, and had four daughters. <laughs> and and so, they swore they uh, would not do the and, same. <laughs> and they looked at it and go, you know, well, it's because when Dennis did take over his pipe major. All the family vacations were band trips. Yeah, were course. competitions. Yeah, yep. you know, we're, are we going to Disneyland this year? No, no, well, we got to yeah. go to Santa Rosa. We got to we'll go, go to, to Disneyland this, when there's <laughs> a
0: pipe competition at Disneyland. <laughs> right.
1: So a lot of their family vacations, a lot of their social outlet was the band or with yeah. band members, yeah. and uh, so the girls were like, "Yeah, yeah, we're we're gonna get out of this. We're gonna marry somebody else. We're not. We're gonna have." life beyond pipe band yeah and uh it, it's funny yeah every every one of uh, those daughters that uh, is married has married somebody through the bagpipe band of course um, <laughs> for example aaron mcmaster Gunn married bj yeah. Gunn. oh of course you know, i right. didn't feel like she was part of the Jordan. family yeah so gotcha. she was dennis's oldest daughter um yeah. and they're they're there and BJ's family—they used to be part of our bagpipe band as well. Uh, yeah. Ray Gunn was one of our early uh, drummers. Um, his mother was a tenor drummer. Uh, Kathy Gunn in our group for a while, and mm. uh, his sister uh, Tina uh, was both a Highland dancer and a piper. And so it's—it's it's kind of funny. The family that pipes together stays together. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so yeah, long story short, I, I met Alana. Uh, I knew her from when I first started, uh, and it's funny as we grew up, we had different boyfriends and girlfriends and dated other people. And, yeah. you know, we were friends, but, uh, and there was a point I had a crush on her, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, she kind of blew that off and had her contract with her, her sisters. And, uh, but as we grew up and had a little bit more of life's experiences and, uh, heartbreak with, uh, other individuals, we come to realize what we were looking for in, a companion, and uh, it, was it was right
0: there all along. Yeah, exactly, you know that, <laughs> that, that, that that
1: sticky, sweet, sappy story. I could tell you the whole love story, and it's kind of fun. But you know, long story short, we got married, and now we've got three beautiful children of our own. Uh, my oldest daughter, Cora, is a talented piper. How they earning all kinds of medals and her her solo uh, career and division. And uh, she was competing in our grade five uh, the last couple of years. Now she's moved up and. Uh, my son Lachlan is a snare drummer, and my uh, youngest daughter, I think she's picking up the tenor to uh, play the tenors because uh, oh, that's a lot of plays the tenor, and the fiddle, and things like yeah. that. So, yeah, so a couple pipers and uh, a snare and a couple tenors, we we're we're almost a band.
0: Yeah, you're gonna be okay. You start getting some grandkids on a bass, you're gonna be all right. <laughs> <laughs> right.
1: Well, we've got uh, the cousins uh, BJ and Aaron. They have uh, oh, Mari, yeah. who's that. Fiery, talented, world-class Highland dancer, and then you've got uh, her younger brother Callum, who's learning uh, the snare, and he's going to be quite a, a force on the snare drum as well. Yeah. So, yeah, by the time we get uh, everybody together, we'll, we'll we'll have a little band, more or less.
0: Start bring another band into the Utah scene. <laughs> Just call yeah, it, no, no no call, no, no. call it Ian and his Ian and his backup players, right? Just take it take it full charge from the front. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, no, we got, uh, and I guess you could maybe never have enough bands or too many bands, but uh, we're we're happy to help perpetuate the Salt Lake Scots because if if you look back at it, uh, Alana's grandfather was one of those founding members.
0: With uh, in a way, it's the family band, isn't it?
1: and so in a way it is that family band it's yeah. it's my children are, are fourth generation members of the pipe band when they That's you know so get up cool. to a speed and they're voted in and so yeah, yeah there's a legacy there that uh yeah. you know we want to preserve this year uh 2022 is uh marks 60 years that the solid scots have, have been here in the valley yeah. so it's uh yeah we, we kind of feel like it, it can't die on our watch we're going to yeah, keep this yeah. up keep this going
0: Hello, friends. Just a quick note to make you aware, this podcast is something that I love doing, and I will keep doing it no matter what. But if you want to send me money, I won't say an A. The easiest way to do that is through Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash droningonpodcast. We do regular drawings for bagpipey albums, books, sheet music, and more, including droning on swag. All patrons are in the figurative hat from whence the names of winners are drawn. And there are other benefits to members as well. They're all listed there at Patreon.com/droningonpodcast. And speaking of swag, another way to support the show is to buy cool stuff from my little online shop, BagpipeSwag.com. There you can find droning on stuff as well as other pipey and drummy things that my uh, that my friends and I make. And if you feel so inclined, I genuinely invite you to follow the show on Facebook. It's super fun to have a way to interact over there uh, to discuss past episodes and I also uh, like to bounce ideas off of, off of you my friends. Uh, ask you for input on upcoming interviews, that kind of stuff. Uh, I'd like to invite you to join in on virtual book clubs and uh, probably lots of other cool stuff that uh, I just haven't even thought of yet as of this recording. It's easy to find just get on Facebook and search droning On Podcast, And if Instagram is more your jam, we're also on there at droning.on.podcast. You can also email the show at the thedroningonpodcast at gmail.com. And links to these sites, social media accounts, and more are in the show notes. Leaving the show a positive rating and review helps others to find it, so feel free to do that. And thank you again for listening, you cool human you.
1: you know, certainly I could uh, you know go on for hours about James Richardson, about his action, tell you what he did that day, why he earned the Victoria Cross. Um, but... You know, maybe that's another episode in and of itself, because uh, I've certainly got enough material to, to do that and talk about why, you know, in my mind, he is just such a hero. Uh, yeah. It's not just that he performed that action that day, but before he performed that action, um, he had contemplated what it meant to be a Piper on the battlefield. Mm. He wrote a letter to his mother uh, that I, to this day, I, I can quote it verbatim, mm. that was written in July of. Uh, 19, uh, i to say July 1915, so a little over a year before he would stand and, and pipe uh, there at Regina Trench. Uh, he wrote home to his mother and says, I haven't heard of a piper playing in the charge yet. And to tell the truth, I don't think there'll ever be such an occurrence. Just picture a piper standing full height, facing, oh, let's see, Sorry, I take that back just pit, or just imagine a piper standing full height, playing the pipes, facing machine guns, rifles, bombs, shrapnel. How long would he last? He goes on to say, you know, the closer you hug the ground, the better it is for you and the worse it is for the enemy. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a kid that recognized what it meant to stand up in, in front of, you know, machine gun fire and all the hell that uh, raged across the battlefield. Yeah. He knew what it would mean and that he wasn't, wouldn't last very long. So when that critical moment came that morning of October 8th and he stood, He knew full well that he might not survive, but he had a duty to perform. For me, that that defines hero, (laughs) you know, right there. And, uh, man, you know, it it elevates uh, what he did. It was not just a a spur-of-the-moment reaction. It was something he had thought about methodically Mm -hmm. and knew full well what it might mean to perform his duty. And what's also really important to, to know and understand about him is that his regiment, uh, the Sixteenth Battalion, they participated in in some real key moments in World War One. He was one of the well, he was at the very first gas attack, the first time mm, the Germans wow. ever used chlorine gas on the battlefield. Yeah, it was against his regiment. Wow, it was yeah. It, you know, he survived that uh, in this attack at Kitchener's Wood they uh, and when people think oh he was just a piper well he was also a stretcher bearer he was also going in with rifle and bayonet like a regular soldier mm-hmm. you know he he fought it was not just oh you have band activities and you stay behind the the, the lines mm-hmm. and so he knew full well what uh you know this this war was and what it was about and the horrors that he you know had to face and, and deal with um the commanding officer, uh, after that first engagement—oh, by the way, that uh, first gas attack—that was the first major engagement this regiment had faced when they got mm. over there. What a what so a welcome! it was wow. a, yeah, baptism by fire, right? Yeah. So that commanding officer said, "Okay, um, yeah, we're not going to put our pipers out and you know, literally charging out in the battlefield with the pipes." Mm-hmm. Uh, we need every man for the rifle, mm-hmm. and uh, and the bayonet, and so the pipe band was used to march men back and forth from the trenches. Uh, it you know played uh, in the rest areas. It entertained the troops and things like that. And they had that per- for purpose, reveille, and you know whatnot. But they did not go out in the advance with the Canadian Scottish Regiment from. uh like September, uh, you know, the time frame of, you know, 1914 through 1915. In fact, we find evidence, and this was stuff we uncovered in our research, uh, too, that, and again, I don't mean to keep going on here, but um, I, I have a book. So that original book, The Pipes of War, in it, it details some actions uh, involving members of the the 16th Battalion Pipe Band, uh, where they said they were you know played these men into battle. I have one of the early copies of the book when it was first released. It was released in a deluxe uh, first edition uh, that was limited to like 200 volumes. Mm. One of those volumes was given to a. a uh, major uh, 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 God, I'm trying to remember it's his, uh, his Ray I'm trying to remember his first name but his last name's Ray. Ray uh, he was uh, Jimmy's co- over at the company Jimmy was over in in uh, in, in a number of the uh, engagements and the book I have it's his personal copy he wrote in the front of it mm. uh, I think it's copy number 71 of the 200 he wrote notes in the margins and where like corrections the, Exactly. Oh really? <laughs> where the book said where the book said certain things happened, yeah. he would underline it. And he'd say, "Not true." You know, oh no, really? No, no, no pipers in this battle. They were with the rifles, or you know, something like that. Oh and then yeah. He highlighted the section on Jimmy. He's like, "Yeah, it served under me in my company," and you know, all this and that. And so I have this firsthand account. In you correction. have that
0: copy. Uh,
1: I have that copy.
0: Wow, that is so yeah. cool. <laughs>
1: So these are those things that you, know, you uncover, and then suddenly you're, you're able to kind of correct history. Yeah. And I don't fault the the authors of that book. Sure. Keep in mind, they published that in 1920, yeah. two years after the war ended. Mm-hmm. And it is trying to be an all-inclusive volume, getting information from across the world, from Australia, yeah. from Canada. from So these guys are publishing this in Scotland, in Glasgow, mm-hmm. Scotland. They're getting correspondence from Victoria, British Columbia.
0: And this, of course, this is a pre-internet. It's uh, it takes exactly a, it takes a while to get information back and forth.
1: Yeah, this is before you're you're making international phone calls easily. You know, this yeah. is this is a lengthy correspondence, and to be able to, you know, check and edit and vet every detail right, to and make sure that accuracy is yeah. there. Yeah, there just there wasn't the resources available to them that we have yeah. now, and so I don't fault those original authors, but that's been the history and the defining history for a lot of people for looking into this subject matter for a lot of years and it's interesting to now be able to kind of correct uh, some inaccuracies Uh, and that was one thing i never intended so i've actually got a a version of that i've been uh, looking to to print and actually was looking to go to print just before covid broke out mm-hmm. and then the supply chain issues because uh, some of the best printing was in, in china
0: <laughs> speaking of speaking documentary <laughs>
1: exactly so you know i'm sitting here shaking my head going you know i'd intended to release it uh actually there in uh, 2020 because 1920 was the first oh, edition yeah, yeah. this was going to be the centennial edition you know 100 yeah. years later and in it, I was going to include. I've got a whole kind of addendum at the back mm. uh, that uh, has some of Jimmy's, you know, letters, uh, where we uh, talk about some of that history. And I release with it, uh, you know, Colonel Ray's notes here, uh, where I'll even include, you know, his handwritten notes in the margin and everything, so you can see uh, what that was. And it would be the Centennial edition of the Pipes of War,
0: mm.
1: which you know we've got the rights to publish and So I've got to get that uh, printed and published. And unfortunately, it's not, you know, 19, you know, 2021 when all of this went to, you know, hit the fan. But maybe here now that we're starting nineteen twenty or 2022, I can get that out and and, uh, move forward with the Pipes of War podcast and stuff. But yeah, um, I was telling you that because in there, you know, we learned that Jimmy wasn't allowed to play over the top of the trench. And that was one thing he wanted to do. Mm. Uh, He wrote home about it constantly and so when he writes his mother and says I haven't heard of a piper playing in the charge yet yeah that hasn't happened for him mm-hmm. now there are other regiments like Daniel Laidlaw at Lou's, uh, where they're playing uh, men over the top and they're playing into action and so was Jimmy aware had he heard about that he was just trying to keep things you know from his mother so that she wouldn't worry so much about him mm-hmm. you know probably I think he was aware that there were other, you know, Pipers playing in action, but his commanding officer had forbidden it because of the experiences that they they had had. He asked the night before they went out at Regina Trench, so October of 1916, this kid, he, and this is documented and reported in the official record, that he asked to be paraded before the commanding officer, and his request was granted, And he came to that officer, and it says, uh, you know, that he implored him with tears in his eyes. Whatever Jimmy felt that night, he was so moved to go before his commanding officer, beg permission to lead the men out into the field with the pipes. And so compelling was his argument that that commanding officer relented. And he said, all right. You know and for the first time the canadian scottish the 16th battalion they were going to be led into battle by their pipers one for each company and that commanding officer said jimmy you know you're going with me hmm. so this 20 year old kid just you know barely 20 basically says yeah you know i'm a piper you know i pipe for them and makes this you know passion speech uh and again, that kind of goes to that idea of that identity that, you know, we're more than just a musician. You know, we are pipers. And he uh, convinced and and changed what had been practice and protocol for that regiment for now, you know, a couple years worth of fighting. He turned it all on a dime that night. And then that next morning, um, they were tasked with taking Regina Trench, uh, which set on the reverse of a slope, meaning that it was kind of On the other side of this little rise and they couldn't really see that target from where they were amassing but the plan was for the opening bombardment the artillery to pummel the german line and their wire entanglements with the idea that the shells uh, would tear the barbed wire apart and these pipers would be able to advance and move through uh, that opening and take uh, the, the enemy position this was done 4:50 a.m. October. There was a little bit of, you know, snow and rain. Uh, they fire, you know, these shells off, and they're uh, they're blowing things to kingdom come out there, and then they advance. the The call comes for them to advance, but the pipers were told not to play going forward. That they would receive an order. The commanding officer would tell them when they could start piping.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So Jimmy's walking out, and his sergeant major uh, comes over and asks him why aren't you playing he says well i you know, haven't been told to play yet and uh, they advance in this charge and they get up close to the german line and uh, this is a, a pretty heavily fortified uh, uh line it uh, the it, they were hardened german marines they were the, the i think it's the fourth division ersatz uh, that set in that that area these guys had machine gun nests and emplacements uh, dugouts. It was it was a not just your little trench in in, in, in the dirt. This was yeah. uh, a fortified position, and so these uh, Canadians they advance, and uh, as they're getting closer, they start running in, and as they run in, they literally run into the barbed wire. Mm. It wasn't cut. Mm. The artillery hadn't torn it apart as they had imagined it would, and so men got hung up in the wire, oh, man. screaming, crying out. And the Germans opened up machine gun fire, and this is, you know, 20 to 40 yards out from the trench. And they just start killing them all, and it looks like everyone's going to be a casualty that day. The men panic. They start diving for cover in the shell holes and laying down in the mud just trying to avoid getting hit. Jimmy and the commanding officer and the sergeant major end up in a a shell hole themselves. Um, and Jimmy hadn't even played yet. None of the pipers had begun playing yet. Yeah. Uh, the commanding officer rises up to assess the situation, and as he does so, he gets hit. Mm. And you know where he was hit? I don't know. You know, I imagine yeah. as he's poking his head up over, it's probably going to be a head wound. Yeah. And it's it's going to be traumatic. Uh, you know, Jimmy's probably uh, you know spattered with his commanding officer. When that officer falls you know, back into the, into the hole, that Sergeant Major, uh, he you know, rushes to the aid to assess uh, the condition of that commanding officer, uh, Lucky, and he, he uh, sees that he's dead. And Jimmy looks down on this scene. And Jimmy, his response is to look at that Sergeant Major in the eye and, and ask, will I give him wind? You know, I can't do the Scottish thing. He's like, will I give him wind? You know, that sergeant major looks up at him and realizes what he's asking. You know, will I strike up the pipes? Will I give him wind? He knew his duty was to rally those troops. All these men that are panicked and going to be killed, he's got to turn that tide. And so he looks at that sergeant major and says, will I give him wind? Mm -hmm. And that sergeant major looks back at him, and his response is, I... Imon gear wind so Jimmy steps up to the lip of that uh, that shell the hole he strikes up his pipes he stands full height facing the enemy facing the rifles bombs shrapnel etc and he starts playing and walking back and forth you know, like he's parading in the old hometown walking back and forth along the wire and he's you know playing uh, the realullik um The official record says the effect was instantaneous on the men. They responded. They rallied to the piper. They tore the barbed wire down with their bare hands. Jimmy proceeded through the wire with the men. He led them to the German parapets. There he switched uh, to where he began playing uh, devil in the kitchen on the German (laughs) parapet. Choose, of all the tunes, of all yeah. yeah. <laughs> the tunes, yeah, plays devil in the Kitchen." There, yeah. uh, the troops are jumping in and, and uh, starting, uh, you know, their attack. He ends up uh, setting his pipes down.
0: He mm-hmm. uh, helps bomb some German dugouts. I've, I've and, got to imagine uh, that at some point that would be typical to put down the instrument and, and pick up a weapon. Yeah,
1: right. So he he does that, and he helps uh, you know clear the trench, and then. He, uh, his that sergeant major that said I'm on Gimwind, he ended up being the second in command. And once that mm. first commanding officer was killed, he was that commanding sure. officer. Yeah. Um, and his last name was Mackey. So sergeant major Mackey, he uh, uh, he gets wounded. He catches a, a round or two in, uh, in the shoulder, or, uh, shoulder, yeah. and uh, he, he's bleeding pretty substantially. Jimmy ends up taking him out, and. Escorting two German uh, POWs back. And as he gets near the Canadian line, the stretcher bearers and some of their men come out to uh, take the German prisoners and they uh, start uh, to administer to Sergeant uh, Major Mackey. Uh, And Jimmy says, Okay, you know, you take him, I got to go back for my pipes. And Mackey mm-hmm. says no, you know, don't go back. <laughs> and uh, the stretcher bearers likewise are, are telling him no, you know, come. And he says no, I've left my pipes. I have to go back for my pipes. <laughs> and Mackey says you know you're well, you know we'll wait for you. And the stretcher bearers are like no, we got to get you back. <laughs> Mackey later you know said uh, you know that he refused and he made him stay there, but that he became so sick and and with the loss of blood he eventually kind of fainted. Sure. Uh, those stretcher bearers took him back, but he the last thing he saw was Jimmy, you know, going back across No Man's Land again that day uh, to recover his pipes, and that's the last he ever saw of him or anyone ever saw of him. Mm -hmm. He, you know, his life went out somewhere in that terrible blast of war. He went back for those pipes, not just because they were, you know, his pipes, but we learned from one of his letters that he wanted to buy those pipes from the Quartermaster store and send them home. His parents, his dad, loved the bagpipes, loved pipe music. Uh, They participated in Highland games and all those things. They were Scott through and through. And so uh, his his sister was a Highland dancer. And this was a family that loved perpetuating that Highland uh, culture and heritage, especially there in British Columbia. And the hope was that the war would be over soon and Jimmy would be back in time to play for his sister's wedding. And he wasn't. The war rolled on. Well... The hope was he'd be home in time to play for uh, his parents' anniversary. Well, it became clear he wasn't going to be able to do that, but yeah. he writes in a letter to his sister, well, his aunt, who's in People mm-hmm. Scotland, and says, you know, I, I've got this great idea. He called it a stunt. You know, I've got mm-hmm. this great stunt. I'm going to buy, because other pipers have been killed, there were extra sets of pipes in the quartermaster store. Yeah. He was going to buy from the army his set of pipes those ones he played there on the battlefield mm-hmm. he was going to send those home to his parents and be like hey you know i wasn't able to be there to play yeah. for your anniversary mm-hmm. but here's an anniversary present for you yeah. you know this set of pipes and so when he's going back for those pipes it's because he's got that that special purpose for them mm-hmm. and uh I, I think it makes it even more poignant that he went to get those uh, knowing that yeah. um and then of course he gets killed uh and those pipes, they mm. sit there in the mud until they're picked up by uh, the army chaplain. Yeah. And it's interesting when you see those pipes today. There's two things missing. the The, the pipes are all intact except for two pieces. One is the lower stock of the base drone, mm. and the blowpipe. If you think about as a piper, when you carry your pipes, what do you hold on to?
0: Yes. Yeah, sure hold on to that, that stock and fold, fold the blowpipe up to it, right? Or lift the chanter up to it.
1: Right. So either the, the chanter or the blowpipe and whatnot, but you typically you're carrying your pipes by that lower portion of that base stock.
0: Yeah. That, Mine's uh, a different color than the other stocks because of that, because of the sweat from my hand getting on them. <laughs> exactly. So
1: here's something that we've uh, postulated, um, the idea that Jimmy did find those pipes. And when you look at those pipes today, there are, there's a, uh, what clearly appears to be a bullet round that went through the lower part of the chatter and splintered oh. part of it out. There's shrapnel damage to the bag and to the, uh, you know, the tartan. There's shrapnel damage to the ribbons. There's, you know, damage and, and mud, uh, you know, all over the, uh, the drones and in and, uh, and the combing. And there look to be what you know could be age or even you know possible blood stain. The thought is, maybe Jimmy had those pipes. Maybe he had made it back, and he was carrying those pipes by that lower stock. And when the army chaplain, Edward Yeld Bate, came upon Jimmy and had that responsibility to bury him, he simply disassembled the pipes from Jimmy's clutch that his hand might still be holding that lower portion of that base stock that he simply just disconnected the stocks of the tuning pin joint there and pulled the bag out and disassembled them from around uh, that portion that he was holding yeah. and uh, that's just you know one idea, why are the pipes so intact except for those two pieces right. and when you think that that's what a piper or he carries his pipes utilizing that area that maybe reverently uh, that, uh, that chaplain had, uh, disassembled those pipes, uh, so that, you know, that piper could be interred, but he was left clutching, um, you know, that section. Mm-hmm. And so just a thought, you know, something that, you know, we have no way of proving, yeah. but, uh, you know, that thought, you know, was, yeah. I, I kind of like to, to cling to that, that he did make it back for those pipes that he wanted to get to so desperately, mm-hmm. uh, but in returning, uh, had, uh, had fallen victim to, uh, to that, uh, battle uh, yeah. and yeah. it's interesting having gone over there um, if you ever get the chance uh, to go and see the Western Front in France, I say do it. I took my children there this last October uh, my son his birthday is October 8th the same day Jimmy had fought and earned the Victoria Cross. Mm-hmm. Um, we went there uh, to France uh, for a family you know holiday this, uh, this past October. And we happened to go to that battlefield. And the cemetery, what they ended up doing uh, after the war was consolidating those battlefield graves. There was a a Commonwealth War Graves Commission that was assembled. And they went and they would collect the bodies from, and so they disinterred and and reinterred bodies Mm -hmm. into what are now known as Commonwealth War Graves. Mm -hmm. And they spot, and kind of litter the landscape out there but instead of having individuals buried all over in a field they pull them into a uniform cemetery mm-hmm. and so Jimmy is buried in Adnack Cemetery, Adnack is Canada spelled backwards mm-hmm. um, they're near Regina Trench it's literally within, you can see the, from the cemetery the original spot where he was interred and where he fought and fell where the, the trenches were um, they're farm fields now And when you go out to these places, in the farm fields, there are these islands of stone, these little fenced-in areas that are, you know, contain some 2,000 headstones Mm. uh, with this great big granite cross of sacrifice and, you know, everything that denotes these Commonwealth war graves, a couple trees planted. Um, But, wow, uh, you go and you see these things, and it's a very moving
0: experience. But have you ever heard of the iron harvest? no but I can I can imagine that it would have been a, a real job to basically start tilling this ground and pulling up a, a whole lot of metal
1: <laughs> well that's precisely what it is but it's still going on yeah oh, man. so here we are over 100 years this last October we were there on the 105th anniversary of yeah. this battle the Fields had been; you know, were laid fallow. They were uh, had recently been um, tilled again, and this happened the first time I went over uh, back in uh, for the ninetieth anniversary. So you know, now we're fifteen years ago. I think it was the first time I went over. Um, here we are, uh, even you know another year. When did I go over? Yeah, you know, maybe it's pushing that line down. The, the anyway, pandemic
0: makes it weird. It's hard to remember. It does how does make things it's weird. Been. Yeah.
1: But anyway, we're over there for the 105th anniversary, and I tell my kid, you know, or my kids, yeah, go walk across that field and look down. And they went out and they literally collected um, shrapnel. Yeah. To this day, the yeah. those fields yield up, and sometimes they yield up yeah, intact, unexploded ordnance, and they have. Oh bomb details scary. that have to come through and collect yeah. Them, yeah but every year as the farmers till their fields they drag all this shrapnel over to you know one corner it seems the ground still yields up Man. shrapnel bullets shells fragments belt buckles cap badges um the first time i went over there i walked across that ground I, I stepped outside the cemetery and walked towards where jimmy had fought and i you know clicked a, uh, kicked a clod of dirt and i realized well, that's not dirt. And I bent down and it was this piece of iron. Hmm. And I took another step and I realized you can't go two or three steps without kicking a piece of iron. Mm-hmm. And you look around and you pick up some of these pieces. The pipe major, uh, Roger McGuire, was with me. Um, you know, we were filming a segment there. And he bent down and he picked up a, a piece of broken belt buckle. And you were just going, oh, my gosh. And it's then that I had this whole kind of paradigm shift. There was this moment of, wow, what must these men have faced yeah. when a hundred years later, you're still picking up shrapnel and the amounts that we were seeing. Mm-hmm. It had to be unimaginable, the amount of bullets and shrapnel and, and those bursting shells that shoot out the little steelies everywhere. And you're yeah. just going, what these guys had faced. You know, what hell that must have been. And you see that though, in, in those bagpipes. When you go to Victoria and you look at Jimmy's pipes, it's a tangible reminder that that young man who had been this ordinary boy, when he stood up, you know, he became the most extraordinary of heroes hmm. because he faced all of that with nothing more than a set of bagpipes. And he turned the tide of battle. He rallied those troops. They tore that wire down. They went on and they claimed the trench that day. And it wouldn't have happened without him. It was because of that and taking, you know, that uh, Sergeant Major back out that he was awarded that highest medal for valor. And uh, and fully deserving of it, and, uh, in my opinion. Especially when you go and you walk that ground and you see what that would have been like, yeah, it changes you. I I Mm -hmm. thought I knew until I stood on that ground. Mm -hmm. And then you really come to understand what that would have been like. And it's just, yeah, it's life-changing. It changed for me uh, and brought to me that deep reverence and respect uh, that I talked about earlier in our conversation of men and women who fight and fall for our freedom who stand for those righteous causes and provide us with the safety and security that we enjoy, that our children enjoy here now. It, uh, freedom comes with a price. And uh, I think it's important to remember and uh, remember warrior pipers like uh, James Richardson. So sorry to keep uh, talking and taking this on and giving you more of a to to drop.